Hey guys, it's your host Julian. This week I sit down with Retakes Director for King of the Hill, Glenn Dion. In this episode we'll chat about how he broke into the animation industry, some of his favorite episodes, some of the pranks that were pulled behind the scenes, and Glenn's going to share one of my favorite stories about them pranking the late great Ian Wilcox. If you haven't yet, you should check us out on Patreon. We're offering three tiers with a lot of fun perks. Some of those perks included in the three tiers are a special shout out to all the patrons, question priority, early and ad-free access to the audio and video chats, voting on our upcoming retrospectives, and so much more. Now, let's get on to my chat with the great Glenn Dion. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to What's My Head Podcast. I'm your host, Julian. Today, I'm joined by Glenn. Glenn, how are you, sir? Doing great. Good to see you. Man, absolutely. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, man. So, we're, ladies and gentlemen, we're continuing our weeks-long chat now with King of the Hill with another person that's going to continue to add layers to the King of the Hill story. My favorite, <laughs> I have told so many people this so many times, man, so I apologize, but King of the Hill hands down my favorite adult animated comedy of all time it's probably my favorite adult show of all time there's so much heart in here there's so much soul there's so much fun i would love to know man uh you said you came on a season three so mm -hmm. how does glenn go from doing what he was doing before to working on king of the hill uh, i i'll say this much um i got lucky on an absolutely inconceivable level uh yeah. i mean like literally I can't even, I can't stress enough how, and people, I've had people ask me like, well, how do I get in the industry? I'm like, I don't know, man, because Lucky. It, I tripped about 15 times and landed on a primetime network show in my first job. Um, so what happened was I was living in Seattle, Washington at the time, and uh, I was selling shoes in a store downtown mm -hmm. Seattle. Uh, I was living the life. And uh, I had met a guy, I, and again, lucky, I was looking for an apartment in Seattle. Uh, this would have been 1996, like early 1996. And I went to this apartment. This is back in the day when you just walked around and looked for signs that said vacancy. There was like no internet or anything like that. You just walked around. I was walking on Lower Queen Anne Hill in Seattle. And I saw a sign that said vacancy. So I went in and asked the manager. It was like, oh, I see there's a room. Can I check it out? And they're like, well, the, the previous tenant's still living there. But I'll check with him to see if it's okay. And they were like, he was like, he said, yeah, sure. Come on in, take a look at the place. So I go in, the place looked like someone threw a hand grenade in there. It was just an absolute mess. And it turns out uh, he was just moving upstairs. But the first thing I noticed was, is that it was an older guy and he was sitting at a drawing table, specifically an animation table with an animation disc drawing. Now I had wanted at the time to be a comic book artist. So I didn't really, I thought animation was sorcery that like, only a select few who were part of some sort of blood pact were able to do. So it never even occurred to me to be like a, a thing that I could pursue. And, but I just saw him and I was like, Oh, what is this guy doing? And she was like, here's the bathroom. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'm just like, literally the place could have had mold and cockroaches. And I probably would have ended up taking it because as soon as the tour was over, it was a studio apartment. So mm -hmm. the tour didn't take very long. As soon as it was over, I was just like, hey, uh, I was like, what, what you doing there? And, and the guy's like, oh, uh, you know, I'm an animator. I, and, and we got to talking. He was at the time doing some freelance for like a video game for Microsoft or something. But when we got, to, I got to talking to him, he was like a 30-year veteran of television animation industry. And he'd worked on Scooby-Doo back in the early 70s, Super mm -hmm. Friends. He worked on G.I. Joe in the um in the 80s he'd worked in the on the movie heavy metal so he's just laying down all these shows and i was like oh my god and i told him i said well yeah i i, I like to draw i wanted to be a comic book artist and everything he's like oh i've always wanted to 
do comics and he's like well hey i'm only moving upstairs so if you uh you know if you take this place we can just you know compare notes so i took the place and for like the next year and a half he lived upstairs and we just he taught me kind of animation um i taught him what i knew about comics at the time i wasn't like a published comic book artist or anything but i had been studying you know comics for years and i'd always been an avid comic reader and uh what ended up happening was because he he didn't want to come back down here he wanted he was from seattle he wanted to stay up there but what happened was is that he had x number of years in the guild the, the animation guild and he was short of being fully vested by like a ridiculous like a couple like five weeks or something like that like he had to come down here and work in a, a on a, in a guild at a guild job for like five weeks he was in his early 60s at the time so this was a major it was a concern for him to to have health insurance for the rest of his life, pension, things like that. And he's like, well, I have to do it. He had a friend at Sony Pictures who, uh, Sony Animation, who was doing Men in Black, the Men in Black cartoon at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he moved down, grudgingly moved back down here. And he's like, hey, when you're ready, um, you let me know. And you can come down, you can stay with me. I'll introduce you to people, whatever, the whole nine yards. And I'll, you know, try to get you set up. And I was like, okay, I'll keep that in mind. And, um, and then six months went by and things kind of progressed in Seattle to a point where I just got, I just decided I can't stay here anymore. I'm getting nowhere. I was just on a hamster wheel and uh, something kind of came to a head where I'm just like, gotta go. And I called him up and was like, Hey, is that offer still standing? He's like, absolutely. And at the time that I called him, he was just coming off of a timing gig on the Simpsons. Mm -hmm. And he lived a block from film Roman studios in, in North Hollywood. So I made all the arrangements Gave the notice at my office um, and got my little Mazda 323 and headed south. And I started, I just drove down here, got to North Hollywood and stayed with him. And I remember two things. The first day I was there. So I got there and then like the next day. So the first full day I was there, he's like, hey, I have to go drop some freelance stuff off over at WB. And he had been doing freelance background designs for Batman Beyond, which was my favorite wow. show. So we went, it was a Saturday, so there was nobody there, but he was just going in and just dropping some stuff off or whatever. And back in the old, you know, manila envelope days, mm -hmm. you couldn't just upload something to the server. You, you know, this was 1998. And uh, so we go in and I'm just in the studio and I see the cubicles with all the model sheets up and people's personal drawings and storyboard panels. And then it's, this is like my show. This is a show that I'm I love. And that was the, my first experience in LA. I was just like immediately electrified. Like I could just feel like this energy coming off of everything. And like, I just knew I had made the right decision. The Monday, the first so the, two days later, the, the, that Monday, he walked me down to film Roman and I met this guy. His name was Jay Francis. He was the um, recruiter at the time for film Roman. And I had my crappy portfolio <laughs> and uh, went in and I talked to Jay and I showed it to him. And I think he just wanted to know that I could draw. So he gave me a character layout test for King of the Hill. And he gave me a um, he gave me a, a character design test, which I was like, all right, I, I hadn't really had any thoughts of doing design, but I was like, you know, I'll take whatever design he, or test he gives me. Um, so I did them. Helped, luckily, Paul had, you know, discs and paper and he had everything I needed. And he kind of helped me out and talked me through what I was supposed to do with it. And I remember it was a cut scene from, because I was already a fan of the show. I'd watched the first two seasons, was already a fan of the show. So I knew it pretty well. And it was a scene from uh, the episode where Bobby uh, was kissing the mannequin, where he got, he got caught oh, kissing yeah. the mannequin. It was a cut scene 
there's a scene that had been cut from that episode where Hank takes him to the mall to try to get him to um, talk to a real girl. And he takes mm-hmm. him into like a clothing, like a girl's clothing store. And he's like, there, there she is, Bobby, go talk to that, to her. So there's a girl who's like trying on dresses and he goes over and then beelines over to a mannequin and starts talking to a, a female mannequin. It was a scene that never made it into the show, but I, was, I just remember thinking, it's like, oh, I know that episode. And uh, so I did the test and I turned it in and then just kind of didn't think anything else of it. And then mm-hmm. weeks went by, um, maybe even a month, because I moved there in like middle of February. And I had just gotten to a point after a while where I was, I just didn't give it a single thought anymore because I hadn't heard anything back. And it was enough time that I was starting to get a little disheartened in general, not just about that, but just like, you know, we had gone around and met a couple of people here and there and nothing was really percolating yet. Um, and I was like, oh, I hope I didn't make, you know, the wrong choice moving down here. Cause I moved to LA sight unseen. I had never been here before. Um, you know, I had never worked in animation before, mm-hmm. but what I didn't realize at the time was that seasons one and two of King of the Hill were done in this weird, they were kind of trying to figure out their method and they were done in this weird kind of storyboard hybrid layout thing where it was like, it wasn't pure storyboards. They were like slightly larger storyboards, but they weren't full, quite full layout, which is how the Simpsons did it. So Wes Archer, who was the supervising director, I guess he had had a lot of experience. He'd worked on the Simpsons since the beginning. And so he understood like, you know, how full layout worked. And that season, I guess King of the Hill had done well enough and was doing well enough um, that they sort of approved shifting to full layout, just like the Simpsons did, which involved hiring a bunch of new people. And at the time, I'm like, now the there was kind of people were kind of at a premium. There was more jobs than there were people to fill them, and which is good because I wouldn't have gotten a job otherwise. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I just I remember specifically there was an ad in mm-hmm. uh, Animation Magazine. It was a full page ad, and it was Hank Hill doing the uh, Uncle Sam routine. And he said, I want you to draw me. And it was basically because they needed a bunch of people. I think they hired like 30 people or something like that. And uh, I ended up being one of them. And it was uh, April 6th, I remember, was my first day. And on April 3rd, I got a call from a woman named Stephanie, who was ended up being my boss for the next 11 years. And uh, and she's like, hey, you want to, this is you know Stephanie over at King of the Hill. Do you want to start on Monday? <laughs> I was like, yes, uh, I do. Yeah, yes. And I was just like, I was about to go to pass, or I uh, got to Santa Barbara with my friend Paul to meet a friend of his up there. And I was kind of a little depressed about the, like the trip. And then she, she called and she's like, you know, here's how much you'll, it starts at. And I had just been selling shoes in Seattle. And so the number she gave me was all the money in the world. And I was just yeah. like, you're kidding. You're going to pay me this for something I've been doing for free my entire life. Sure. And uh, yeah, so I, I hung up the phone and I told Paul, I was like, that was, that was King of the Hill. They want me to start on Monday. And he's like, holy shit. And uh, the trip to Santa Barbara was way more fun than I thought it was going to be because yeah. I like had a job waiting for me. Um, so yeah. And the that weight was lifted just... off your shoulders too. I mean, oh, I got to imagine. Huge. Well, yeah. it was a weight was lifted off and then a new weight was put on. It was like <laughs> that episode of the Simpsons with the stone cutters where they're like, you know, take off the stone of shame, put on the, sh- the <laughs> stone of triumph. And it was twice as big. Because now I had to actually perform. Yeah. And uh, so, and it was right down the street. So I just, I walked. It was a, literally one block away from his, the apartment where I was staying with him. 
So money rolled around and I walked in and there were all these other scared people standing around because there was, I forget how many of this there was uh, that, that were starting that day. And uh, that was, that was luck phase number one. Luck phase number two was that since it was, we were shifting to full layout, they gave us a week of training, which is unheard of. Like and usually in animation, you got to hit the ground running and they don't care. You know, they're just like, here you are, get to work. Um, but luckily they're like, these idiots need training for a week. And they were right. And, uh, and they threw us to poor Sean Cashman, who's been a guest on your show. Yes. And uh, that poor guy had to train three classes worth of morons who didn't know what they were doing. And he was awesome. Sean is still a good friend of mine to this day. And him teaching us layout. And my week was short because it was Good Friday. So mm -hmm. uh, it was five, four hour days. And then I was in the last training week and it was four or five hour days. We still got the same amount of time. It was just condensed into four days. And uh, so, yeah, he taught us layout. He explained just how to, you know, everything, how to do comps, how to blow up the storyboard. And this is back in the day where you had to like, you had the model packs with all the characters. And if you would figure out how big you needed the character to be, and you would take the model pack to the copy machine and you would blow it up or shrink it down to whatever size you would need. And then you would bring it back to your desk and you would use that as the point of reference. Nowadays, you just drag it into the software you're using and scale it up or down or whatever. So uh, he's teaching us all of this stuff. And, and I'm, my head is I'm just trying to absorb it all because I think if I forget one thing come Monday, I'm screwed. And um, yeah, with the week was done and I was exhausted, even though it was only a 20 hour work week. And then Monday rolled around and uh, we went in and we, we were given our assignment. I got lucky phase number three was that I got assigned, uh, my first episode was called Good Hill Hunting. It was, it was episode four, but if you look at it on Hulu, it's like episode eight or something. Uh, I do remember that Luann uh, lost her hair in the Megalomart yeah. explosion. And the first six episodes of the season, her hair was gradually growing back. And then mm -hmm. Fox reordered the, the episodes. And we had a different design for her hair getting progressively longer each episode. And then they reordered the first episodes and we had to go back and redraw her hair in all of these different episodes to be the, the, for the, for them to progressively grow out. And I think that was the last time they ever did anything like that, where, where, uh, episode order air, like, uh, air order mattered. Um, but, uh, so I got, did they ever give a reason why? Did, no, I don't mean to cut you off. Julian, don't ever question the network because <laughs> you'll go insane <laughs> trying to figure out why they do the things they do. Execs are not from this planet. They have their reasons. They don't share those reasons that we don't ask. We just, Goddamn like, aliens. yes, sir, yes, sir. And we just do it. Um, one of the first things I ever learned in this industry. But one of the other things I got super lucky with is that my very first episode, Good Hill Honey, was directed by a guy named Clay Hall. And uh, another, uh, your, I think your last guest, at least the last guest that, that aired as of the time that we're recording this, Alan Jacobson was my assistant director. And uh, he was two years into the industry. And to me, he was this KG Wiley veteran who like had been <laughs> in the trenches and like, you know, this, I have to do everything this guy says. And uh, which I did. And it was, it was a good thing I did. But Clay was the probably the best first director I could have gotten because mm -hmm. he was organized and he was focused and he was patient 
and he had a great assistant director. And it was just one of those things where like, in hindsight, there were other directors that I worked with later. And I'm like, oh, if I'd gotten you and there's nothing against them. I'm not like, oh, I hate this guy. But like, I could tell like, oh, if I'd gotten this guy first, it would have wouldn't have gone as smoothly. Yeah. Um, but Clay was just the guy like he was he just I was so glad I got him first. He just knew like I never had to like it was never stressful. There were a couple of directors where when you when you got them, you were like, oh, thank God. <laughs> it's like you just knew because like I'm not going to be working nights and weekends because they're organized and, and everything. But uh, Clay was one of those guys. Um, and uh, I remember it's two things I remember my first day is one. Um, uh, my cube wasn't ready. So I had two first days. I had my first day of training, which was the week before. And then I had my first day on the job, which was the following week. And they didn't have a cubicle for me, so they put me in a um, they put me in a room with a storyboard artist named Michael DiMartino. And anybody who knows that animation like- knows who Michael DiMartino is. I didn't yeah. know who Michael DiMartino. Nobody knew who he was then. He was just a board artist on King of the Hill. And again, wily, cagey, you know, veteran to me. And and he could have been hired the day before for all I knew. But as far mm-hmm. as I was concerned, you know, this is the guy. This guy right here. And he gave me all kinds of like advice. I'm like, this is my first day in the business. And he gave me a bunch of advice and he was super cool and super chill. And then I remember looking at his boards and I was like, what am I doing? (laughs) There's been a horrible mistake and they're going to realize this any second now. Um, But yeah, he was just like really mellow, cool guy. And I was really glad that I actually, I was really glad that they didn't have a cue ready for me because I got to like talk to this dude for Mm -hmm. the like, probably most of the day and then at the end of the day they were like all right we had a cubicle for you but i was glad i had that little buffer and was able to talk to somebody instead of just being tossed into a cubicle and saying go mm-hmm. go for it um but yeah so i remember sitting at my new desk and i remember having like a stack of animation paper and reading the script and listening to the track and just thinking to myself i don't know what i'm doing and they're going to realize that i don't know what i'm going to do and i was like two weeks two weeks tops and then i'm going to be back to selling shoes and they're going to be like, this. wait, is there a guy named Glenn Dion, D-E-O-N? And we just hired the wrong dude. Um, and, uh, but I just, you know, and one of the things, I grew up in the military. My dad was a career Air Force. We moved around a lot. And one of the things you learn um, is adaptability. You, you just, you li- you're living your life. And then all of a sudden someone says, guess what? Now we're going to uproot and we're going to move you over here. And you get to start all over again. And I did that enough times when I was a kid, making new friends, starting new schools, just constantly that. Moving to new places and starting new things was just the norm for me. And this was just the latest move and the latest new thing that I was doing. But it was, I, it mattered because this is all I'd ever wanted to do. I wanted to draw for a living in whatever form that took. And suddenly here I was sitting at this desk and someone was going to pay me money to do it. And I was like, I can't. It was the first time in my life where I'm like, I can't screw this up. I'd had jobs before. I'm like, if I screw this up, who cares? Yeah, pretty much every job I'd had up to that point. This is the first time where I'm like, I cannot screw this up. And um, I remember the first scene I ever worked on in Good Hill Hunting. It was an ep- it was a scene where um, Hank is at Pro- Strickland Propane, and uh, Eustace, the guy that, that they used to make fun of that they went to high school with, he was there and he was trying to lift a propane tank and he mm-hmm. couldn't because he's a twig boy. And then Hank walks in <laughs> and he's like, Hank, could you help me out to my SUV with this? And Hank, of course, grabs it with one hand, just picks it up like it's a paper cup. 
And I remember looking at the storyboards and I got, and it just it suddenly occurred to me, I was like, and I got this idea and, and luckily Clay's office was literally right outside my cubicle. And I stuck my head and I was like, Hey Clay, I was just thinking when Eustace, uh, after tank, Hank takes the tank, Eustace should like maybe rub his back or something like it hurt. And Clay was like, okay. <laughs> and then I went back and I'm like, I get to like, have ideas and stuff and like do things and like add to this. And that was the first time I like it was my first day. And I got that realization that like, I'm not just, you know, doing this like mechanical thing that I get to like add to the whole thing. And and I think from then uh, it started to kind of roll a little bit more for me. And then I forget at what point I started feeling a little bit more comfortable um, with all of it. But uh, I do remember it was about two weeks into the job and um, my friend, Paul, who I was living with, he had worked on The Simpsons the year before. And The Simpsons, for anybody who's ever worked on it or known anybody that worked on it, every third Tuesday, they have a gigantic party at like Staples Center or who knows what. They were, they were always known for like every time you turned around, they were having huge, you know, premiere parties and they were having huge Christmas parties or whatever. They just, I think it's because Matt Groening owns The Simpsons. So he was just throwing parties for the crew left and right. And they were always like crazy blowout, insane parties. And I remember my buddy, my friend Paul, he got invited to uh, the 200th episode party, mm. which if I'm not mistaken was the episode where Hank, or Hank, where uh, Homer becomes the garbage man for Springfield. U2 was in the episode. Steve Martin was in the episode. And the party was at the House of Blues on Sunset. And so Paul's like, you want to go? And I'm like, Okay, so here we are in the heart of Hollywood at the House of Blues. They've rented the whole place out. There was this pyramid of like pink sprinkled donuts on a table. <laughs> you could just go and eat. They had these like women, like hostesses walking around with what were basically um, White Castle burgers, but they called them crusty burgers that they would like give you. The news was there. Um, uh, there was some band that Matt had brought in. I forget who the band was to play. Um, Phil Hartman. Wow. I'm not mistaken. I think this was Phil Hartman's last live appearance because I remember mm -hmm. shortly after that party hearing time. about him dying on the radio and going into Clay's office and being like, oh my God, did you hear about Phil Hartman? He's like, no. And I had just seen him like two weeks prior doing his whole Troy McCore bit and just killing and owning the entire room. And I just remember just buzzing at all of it because I was, again, selling shoes weeks earlier and <laughs> not yeah. weeks but like months earlier i'd just been selling shoes in seattle washington and now i was at a simpson it, i i was a huge fan of simpsons I, I to this day i still believe that seasons three through six it was the greatest television show in history it was the best written television show in history so i was just like oh my god i'm at the simpsons party and there's all these people and there's phil hartman and donuts and crusty berries and i went outside because it was all getting to be a bit much for me and I went outside into the parking lot. I looked up and on Sunset Boulevard, there was a huge King of the Hill billboard. And it wasn't just a billboard. Hank's arm was on like a motor and he was holding a spatula and it was moving up and down like he was flipping a burger or something. And the coals or the coals, like the burners for the his propane grill were glowed, like they had lights on. the. And I was just yeah. looking at it and it just suddenly occurred to me that I worked on that show. Mm -hmm. I worked on a show that required or, or merited a, a extremely fancy and expensive looking billboard on one of the most famous streets in the United States of America. And uh, I, I just stood, I don't know how long I was 
standing there with my mouth open staring at it. But that was the moment I finally realized that like if there was ever a I made it moment, it was probably there. And I, and it happened two weeks into my my career. So I got but again, stupidly lucky. Like I I get the chills sometimes when I think about how lucky I got and that if one tiny thing went differently, none of this would have happened. I certainly no. wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. <laughs> Well, there, there's there's one thing I want to circle. Well, there's a couple of things I want to circle back to. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you you had mentioned him by name a couple of times, but Paul is. I know you said in the '90s he was 60. Is he still around by chance? Uh, unfortunately, now he passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, his name was Paul okay. Gruel. He was my mentor. I would not be in the animation industry if it weren't for him. I would not have the life I have if it weren't for him. And uh, yeah, I think it was about, I want to say 2016, 2015. Uh, he passed away because um, I remember I was at uh, uh, Tip Mouse Studios where I am now and a friend of mine who had worked with him on something else. And he told me I had lost touch with Paul a little bit. He had moved back to uh, to Seattle, but he was in his 80s. Uh, mm-hmm. His health wasn't great when I knew him. Uh, and then 20, you know, so when he when my friend told me it wasn't a huge surprise, but um, yeah. I, I tried to. You know, I, I try to help younger artists out as much as I can, mm-hmm. just just in that sort of pay it, pay it forward. forward. Because yeah. you know, I wouldn't be where I am, and I, I've I've known guys in this industry who try to discourage people from getting into it to keep the competition down or whatever BS reason they give. But that's just never been my style. And like I said, I, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Paul, really, really helping me out, like as much more or more than probably anybody in my life ever has. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's. He's the guy that is worth mentioning. Definitely one of the most important people I've ever known in my life. So, That's and again, really cool. like I said, his his resume is just, you know, it's my childhood. It's super friends, Scooby-Doo. I didn't really watch G.I. Joe, but I know a lot of people that when I told them that my mentor worked on G.I. Joe, they got very excited. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, that's. That's really cool, man. And uh, we like to do it. And we'll do this uh, with your friend Ian as well. Um, but uh What's your favorite story about Paul, man? I mean, when you sit back and you think about him, does one come to mind? Or, you know, if you could uh, encapsulate him in one story, what story would you pick? I think that night at the Simpsons party, because he, to him, you know, he'd been doing this for a long time. To him, it was like, oh, yeah, another one of these. You want to come? And I was just like, mm-hmm. sure. So to me, it was just like, oh, my God. And to him, it's just like the 50th one of these he'd been to or something at that point. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that was the... Like I said, that him him inviting me to that party, it was the thing that gave me the realization. But most of the stories with him were um, when he was just living upstairs from me and I would just go up to his apartment and we would hang out. And he had this idea for an animated project that he wanted to pitch years ago. And he, he decided that he, oh, I'd rather do it as a comic. And um, so I remember sitting down with him and taking like storyboards he had done. And we would just sit down and I'd be like, We'll see in comics since the time doesn't actually exist in the comic like in, in animation you every framing is exactly the same and the time is real like if a character is going to move from here to there quickly you see it happen quickly if you want to convey that in comics you have to arrange the panels in such a way that make people feel like they're moving quickly from one panel to another you have to manipulate them visually so i'm teaching him all this stuff and then he's teaching me about like storyboard and storyboard cleanups and revisions, all this stuff. So we were just sharing ideas back and forth. But I remember working on this project with him. It was science fiction, anthropomorphic animal stuff. It was real fun. It was because I had always done like superhero stuff when I was a kid. So this type, it was like very different for me. 
And um, I brought two things to the party for him is that one, uh, just a, a fundamental knowledge of comic books, which I had learned from Scott McCloud and, and uh, Will Eisner, like everybody else my age. And uh, also there was a game that he created in the, in the comic that was played with giant robots on a centrifugal, a uh, spinning centrifugal ice rink. And it was basically uh, hockey. With, mm-hmm. And the, the net, I remember it was cool because the nets were back to back. So you had to like skate around this ring, like in the game Halo, to get to the other side to yeah. score. And they were, and so, and it spun because it was in space. It was zero gravity, but it spun like in uh, 2001 and created gravity through centrifugal force. And he had it all worked out, but he didn't know anything about hockey. And I grew, I used to play hockey when I was a kid and I just grew up being a fan of So I, I brought a knowledge, a fundamental knowledge of how hockey works and how comics work. And, um, so for me, and it was because it was the first time that I, I ever had that kind of collaborative relationship with another artist. Mm-hmm. I was 25 at the time. And I'd always, art had always been this very isolated thing for me because I, I had an uncle who was an artist, like he was um, not a professional artist, but he, he was a guy that was very uh, influential because he was like the only person in my life that would tell me when something I drew sucked. Everybody else was like, you know, it's the best thing I've ever seen. And he's like, that head's too big or you need to learn foreshortening, whatever. He was always the guy that was honest with me. But this was the first time I ever like collaborated on a project with another artist. And it was really exciting for me, even though I never went anywhere. I didn't kind of really care. But that was kind of even more so, I think, than um, than than getting into the industry or him helping me get in the industry. It was that because that was the stepping stone into into me thinking, oh, I could actually do this. And he was telling me, and I even told him, like, I can't do animation. He's like, you can totally do animation because yeah. it's not that special. He was always like, trust me. He goes, yeah, he goes, I've seen guys who have had 20 year long careers that don't draw as well as you now. So just relax. Mm-hmm. I was just like, so yeah, him making me believe that I could actually do it. Um, and, and like I said, through collaborating and sometimes he'd help me uh, or he'd let me help him out on um some of the freelance jobs that he would get yeah. on, on like shows and stuff from he had friends down in LA. And like I said, there weren't that many people in the, like good people were at a premium. So he was getting freelance stuff from people he knew here when he was in Seattle, they would like just mm-hmm. FedEx him scripts and, and stuff. And he would FedEx boards back. And um, so he, and when he would be working on them, he, and he would even like, let me clean up a couple of panels and, and just get hands on. And, um, that was really important. That was, that was a big one for me. It was just like feeling like I was doing it, you know, and that was the, and that I could do it. And, and that was a big one. You know, he gave me confidence basically. He, he made it possible for me to even pursue this as a career, to even think about pursuing this as a career. That's really cool, man. And uh, like I said, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing because like you said, it's a very isolated and I've heard that I've heard that term so many times. It's a very isolated profession. You know, obviously you guys are with COVID is probably a little bit well, it's not probably, but since COVID, it's probably been a lot of different because there's a lot more people working at home. It's mm-hmm. not as collaborative in a sense. Like it's easier to like you did with Clay where you popped in. I think you should rub us back. What do you think? Yeah, just do it. You know, yeah. it's it's a little bit harder to be call, hey, can I do this? Can I do that? You're on a Zoom call every once in a while. So, you know, the collaborative effort's a little bit easier to to kind of reel in or to highlight i guess if you're all in the same area so to so to hear that he took so much time with you so patient he really showed you and he gave you the confidence so like i said i love hearing stories like this and there's one thing i want to circle back to because it's come up a couple times 
not only here that you've mentioned it, but comic books, but it's also came up with almost every single artist I've had on from King of the Hill. It's like, I wanted to do comics. I wanted, I think Alan said it, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's a couple of other people that said I, I wanted to do comics and I kind of, you know, not fell into animation in a bad way, but I kind of got shown this thing that I'm in doing now. And I, I draw that correlation with Disney. I, I had a few Disney artists on last year and almost every single one that I talked to, they're like, I never wanted to animate. I wanted to do the National Geographic, like the the illustrations on the animals, like the big mm-hmm. games, the elephants, stuff like that. And that was almost exclusively Disney. I never heard that with Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon artists. They all want to do cartoony stuff like Peanuts and shit. Uh, yeah. And I'm not saying Peanuts are shit because I'm a huge Peanuts fan. I got them tattooed on my hands. <laughs> I've got them tattooed. You know, I, I'm a mm-hmm. huge, 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 huge Peanuts fan. Um, but uh, that side really wanted to do the the super, super zany, weird, cartoony shit. And is that like a, I don't want to say is that like a prerequisite because there's like no prerequisites to, you know, I'm going to do comics and I'm going to get into King of the Hill. But is there a lot more people that you've come into contact with that have worked on King of the Hill that had that same kind of, I want to do comics, and then you kind of fell into animation for King of the Hill? I don't know what the numbers are. I, I do remember, like, that was a thing that Alan and I, when, as soon as we met, like, mm-hmm. that was a thing that we really um, kind of kind of came to, like, it's like, ooh, you know, we, we, it's like we saw each other. It's like, comics, comics. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and that was... Comics were a big part of it. Like we used to do, um, my buddy Dusty Abel, uh, who used to work in comics and then moved over to uh, animation. Really phenomenally talented artist. Uh, you might have, he's been doing these things the last couple of years of like, he'll do these um, uh, drawings that have like hundreds of characters on them. And it's like, mm-hmm. he did like every single character that was in Star Trek, the original series. And I, if I remember correctly, he did that one. And then Paramount reached out to him and we're like, hey, uh, it's the Star Trek's 50th anniversary. Can we license this from you? And he's like, yes. Oh, that's so and cool. then it just sort of took up. Dusty's this insane, like, he's like, I always call him a professional fanboy because all of his art is like <laughs> things that that's he awesome. loved as a kid. And um, Dusty used to spearhead this like weekly trip to uh, the comic book store in Burbank. It's called House of Secrets. And that was where the entire animation industry, like we used to see Bruce Tim there. And uh, Patton Oswalt, the comedian, used to get his, yeah. his comics there. I run into him. Uh, a lot and so it was the place to go and we used to go every wednesday for years and years and we would get comics and then we would go to this mexican restaurant for lunch and then they have like the lunch buffet and then we take the two-hour lunch and then go back to work uh i'll be honest with you, i don't know how we ever got that show on the air to be honest it's, like, <laughs> it, it's a mystery to me after all these years um but uh so yeah comics were always a big part and they were always the guys like i said like alan or where, where when we met we just we sort of um we bonded over that, that, that we both had these, like the same kind of love. And like, like I said, my buddy Dusty was just a huge, massive comic nerd, just absolutely fanatical for it. So, um, and we would compare what our favorite books were from the day and we would, and we would spend half the day talking about stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, about comics. Um, but yeah, it, it was, it was very common. We had a lot, we had plenty of people who also, um, you know, just wanted to do animation. I feel like there were, with King and Hill, there were different camps and guys like Alan and I, who had always sort of pushed ourselves to do more realistic sort of superhero, more realistic human proportions. Uh, we kind of felt, at least for me, I felt more comfortable doing King and Hill because it was more realistic human pr- proportions versus like the Simpsons where, you know, Bart's what, like two and a half heads high and they have kind of the noodly arms and they're just made up of spheres and tubes and 
which presents its own, you know, obviously challenges. I'm not, believe me, I'm not saying the Simpsons is an easy show to work on. It's just different. And, um, and so there were people, you know, like me who was like, they just felt more comfortable at King of Hill. And there were the people who always wanted to do, do the animation stuff who were better at the Simpsons or, or shows like that. And I remember we would have people leave sometimes to go to like a Nickelodeon show. And at the mm-hmm. time when I was new, I'd be like, why is he leaving this sweet job to go work on some stupid kids Nickelodeon show? And it's because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted mm-hmm. to do kids stuff oriented stuff, cartoony over the top, crazy stuff like that. And uh, we had the group of guys who always wanted to be working on Batman or Superman or whatever, like the adventure, the action adventure, superhero type stuff. Um I remember we had a guy for years who wanted to, who, who, when he was on our show, he was a little annoying because he just wanted to be on the Simpsons. And we all got this impression. It's like, Oh, well, Hey, if you don't want to be here, dude, there's the door, you know? And he eventually did make it on the Simpsons and he was a great guy. He was a good friend of mine, but there's just some, he rubbed some people the wrong way with his mania for wanting to work on the Simpsons. Um, but I was like, Hey, you know, everybody's got their thing and uh, you know, if that they want to do uh, and that's all there is to it. You know, and then like my boss right now, um, Anthony Leoy, who I believe has been a guest on your show, uh-huh. uh, he was he was one of our top directors. He was like one of the like right out of the gate, his from his first show that he directed, they were like, Oh great, this guy's raising the bar for everybody else. But he um he left to go work on Avatar the Last Airbender, which mm-hmm. seemed like a weird um choice but it was just it was a challenge for him it was a new thing that he's like yeah i, I want to do this i've been doing this for this long now i want to go do this it's like a challenge it's like a a new thing so it, it happened you know we would get because there were there were people that would just be like i'm going to hang on to this job forever um and then there were the other people who would get itchy and want to go and do something else and um we had people that would went to uh, my buddy chuck austin uh he was a board artist when i started he met, eventually went on to be an assistant director on the show uh, he left to write comics for years and made a very big name for himself doing so. Uh, he wrote Superman and X-Men. He wrote like every top book you could imagine for the two big uh, studios. And then eventually he came back to animation. But, you know, it was just that was the thing he wanted to do at that time. And he went and did it. So, uh, yeah, everybody, I think it's just you know, when you're when you have a creative career, sometimes you you want challenge you want new challenges you want to you know do things and a lot of people i know like myself included are always working on our own things um because that that's the kind of the stuff that fuels you a little bit more creatively um the things that you get to mold and it's all you and you don't have to answer to anybody else to do it and i think it's important to have that i mean i know some people don't have that and some people want it but they don't have the time because they have kids mm-hmm. or families or their job is just too demanding or whatever but teach their own you know and um for me, I, I work on my, I like to work on my own stuff and just stay kind of creatively stimulated and, and motivated. But uh, yeah, Absolutely. everybody has their, their, everybody has their thing that they want to be doing. And some people like Disney feature is the thing. Um, like we had a guy that worked on the show for a while that had, he was a casualty of the of Disney basically canning their entire 2D, you know, department at the, in the i guess in the early 2000s whenever it was mm-hmm. like after home on the range or whatever that movie was um and it was rough on him because he had started on pocahontas i think and he Ooh. told me once that he, when he signed his contract the guy said congratulations this is the last job you'll ever have because they were used to 
you know, the old men from back in the Snow White days that were like 90 and still at Disney. And yeah. that, that was the culture. And that's what they sold to this guy. And then they took it away from him. And I was like, God, I can only imagine what that must have felt like for him. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he landed square. He was a super talented dude. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm sure he landed on his feet. But it's just, you know, it's like, you know, you get to work on this kid show over here or you get to work on a show on a movie that is surely going to be a beloved classic for generations mm -hmm. to come. You know, yeah. take your um and he did work on movies that were have become beloved classics for generations. Um, so I guess at least he got that. But, uh, you know, and people would be like, I don't know why he's so upset. King Hill's a great show. I'm like, well, yeah, but if it's not what he wants to do, it's not what he wants to do. And it's not for me to say, it's not for you to say, it's for nobody else to say what somebody wants to do and what somebody doesn't want to do. And, uh, you know, we used to get, we used to kind of get put through the ringer a little bit about the style of the show of King of the Hill, because it was a little wonky. That was Mike Judge's style. And we were a hell of a lot cleaner and, and smoother than Beavis and Butthead. But um, I was just like, I just accepted the fact this is the style of the show you know, deal with it. <laughs> and it wasn't an easy show to work on. Like we did, you know, shows like, and, and I'm not besmirching Family Guy by any stretch of magic because I worked on the Cleveland show, but you know, the characters were like, here's the model of the character. And you know, if, you, if they're nodding or looking down, you just tilt their head or whatever. But on King of the Hill, you had to like move their head in three dimensions and you'd have to see the top of Hank's head and his glasses had to tilt down and you had to do all that stuff. And it was a lot more sophisticated, I think, than people probably gave it, gave it credit for. And, and I can say that because I'm the one that had to do it. <laughs> and I actually like draw it. And we had guys, uh, my buddy Randy, his brother was a sculptor. and He had made maquettes of some of the characters, like busts mm -hmm. of Hank and Bobby and Peggy, because the characters were so hard to draw from different angles that his brother made these like really amazing maquettes. And Randy would keep them in his desk. So if he needed to draw Bobby from a certain angle, he would just pick it up and just tilt it. And then just draw as he saw it. And um, everybody wanted one. Everybody was like, oh, my God, how do I get one of those things? Um, so, yeah, it was it was challenging uh, for that for that reason. Was, was there was there any. So I, I love talking characters because obviously uh, the last couple of years, probably last last year or so. I've really been fascinated with backgrounds. I, I find. Mm -hmm. And I, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry for saying this again, but I, I find world buildings just so fascinating. Right? There's something about, like, I love the characters. I, I love seeing people draw characters, but it's, it's like I said, it's just something about you take these characters and you put them in a place and then they're inhabiting what's going on, right? So they're, not only are they, you guys building the characters, the characters are building the world that's around them because they have to interact with, with houses, with neighbors, with malls, with all this other crazy shit. So I, like I said, I just find them beautiful. I find them fascinating. But when we're talking characters in particular, and you said that these guys were, um, you know, hard to draw at different angles, was mm -hmm. there any one uh, specifically for you? I know you can't talk for everybody else, but was there one or two characters that were extremely difficult to to really nail down? Does any of them stick out in mind to you? The character that I remember specifically giving the most people the most trouble was Cotton. Yeah. And it's because Cotton... There was, a tendency, there was a tendency that people had some people to give cotton little person proportions mm -hmm. they would draw him short torsoed and they would put his knees his knees halfway up his legs and i'm yeah. like no if cotton still had his knees he'd be like six two or six three so um the, the things that were difficult about him and, and the way i used to his little known fact unless you know me then it's a very well-known fact 
is that on the season two DVD for King of the Hill, I did a segment called the Arlen School of Drawing, where I basically sort of did like an instruction on here's how you draw the characters. Mm -hmm. um, and Clay Hall, uh, my first director, he had recommended me to Greg Daniels because Greg told Clay, he goes, hey, I want to do this. And, and Clay, you know, God bless him, recommended me to do it. And I did. So uh, one of the, the the advice I gave for Cotton, because I did all the main characters, but I included Cotton specifically because the way I described him and the way I used to tell people all the time is that on the my model pack for Cotton, I drew legs on him that went down to where his feet would be. And I kept his feet, you know, where they are, just below his knees. But I drew out his legs all the way to the bottom and said, this is how tall Cotton would be if he still had his shins. So what I did was I said, so imagine this guy standing in a hole up to his knees, and that's how you draw cotton. And mm. I would tell a lot of people that. So, so keep that in mind. Always keep that in mind. Cotton's six foot two. He just, at least he would be anyway. Yeah. Draw him as a guy who's six foot two, but standing in a hole up to his knees. And when he walks, he would swing way back and forth because he couldn't bend his legs so his, his legs yeah. would, his legs would stay perfectly straight there was a very specific walk cycle for cotton he took these big swinging steps and his his body <clears> swung <throat> way back and forth one direction to the other so he was the guy um and i remember there were a few times where i had a couple directors that would give me somebody else's scenes back and be like you redraw cotton you know mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, because I did sort of, I didn't, I wouldn't say I had like the secret sauce when it came to cotton. I just understood the character mechanically, how he worked because, and I think it's probably because I probably drew him wrong once. And the director told me I did. And I've always been one of those people that, that I tend to happen again. I try to be the person who only makes a mistake once that I usually only be, need to be told, Oh, you screwed this up. And I'll be like, oh, okay. Then I start breaking him down. <laughs> like, like forensically on how to draw cotton but yeah he was the character i think that um that was just you know he he was the one that gave the most people the most trouble just because of his proportions and his the mechanics of him moving but um acting wise he was the easiest because he was just always angry he's um, so great he's I such love a cotton. fun character i love cotton because cotton is such a we had no two-dimensional characters on the show and God bless our writers. Our writers were so unbelievable. And I was lucky enough in my career that I got to work more closely with the writers and get to know them than most of the artists mm -hmm. because of the nature of the job that I did. Um, and they were great people and they loved the show and they were passionate about the show and they were passionate about the characters. And the thing I loved about Cotton and everybody else is that none of them were just, oh, that's the guy who's like this. Cotton had a moment where he... First, it was like the first time he ever gave Hank a compliment. And he told Hank, he goes, you're a better daddy than I ever was. And Hank's like, what? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you made Bobby. And all I did was make you. <laughs> he was just like, <laughs> it was this like backhanded compliment. Yeah. But he loved Bobby so much that because Hank made Bobby, that was like the thing. That was the thing that endeared Hank to, uh, to Cotton was that Cotton, mm -hmm. that Hank had might made this kid who Cotton loved more than anything in the world. Yeah. And uh, that was my favorite cotton line of all time when he told him that he was a better father than him because he made uh, Bobby and, and all I did was make you. Well, that, that's, <laughs> it's, like... it's funny that it's a backhanded compliment because when I think of cotton, I, I told Alan, I think it was Alan, maybe it was Bill. I can't remember because some of these chats have, have kind of like merged into one because they've been so close to one another. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I'm a huge fan of World War II and the history and everything because of cotton, right? I, mm-hmm. you know, you know the little bit of things when you're going through, you know, through middle school, high school, elementary school, you know, the, 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 the greatest hits essentially of World War II. You know, you hear about Normandy a little bit, you hear about Pearl Harbor a little bit, you know, you hear about the two bombs, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, you hear a couple things, right? But it was like, Cotton's talking about the shit that he went through, you know, as a character, it like really, you know, fascinated me in a sense where like, I want to know more about like what this guy really went through. Cause I wonder if that's possible. Cause as a kid watching this, I'm like, I don't think it's possible to, 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 if your shins are blown off, I don't think you're getting your feet to your knees. And then no. you know you don't have the internet really. So you kind of just have to go with, yeah. you know, whatever you hear might be real. It might be not, but it really instilled that fascination of world war two in me. And then, Whenever I think of Cotton Hill, though, <clears throat> I think of that episode where it's uh, I, I can't remember what Buck did, but he, the Habitat, the Habitat for Humanity. So it's Christmas time. Jimmy Carter's in this episode. Mm-hmm. And then so Jimmy Carter is literally playing peacekeeper negotiator, kind of like he did with the, the, the Iran Contra, whatever it was. But it was uh, him going it back was, and uh, forth Israel and Egypt. It was yeah. uh, Sadat and Begin. That was that was uh, Carter's. That was Carter's big accomplishment. Thank you. Um, you know, so it was. So when I think about, like I said, when I think about Cotton, there's two lines in particular. It's the one with Jimmy Carter, and and Jimmy Carter's like, "You hated a baby, hated the baby." He's like, "A baby." He's like, "Hated him." Day one, he was like, "He cried," you know, all this other shit. And then it was just like, so if you had this this mythical button or this magical button where you could blink him out of existence, what do you push? And he's like, "I guess not yet." And then he goes over to Hank and he's like, and he said that he's like, yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't push the button yet. And, uh, you know, going back and forth. So I think about that one. And then uh, I can't remember the episode. I think it was probably the one where uh, Hank finds out he's from New York or he was born in New yeah. York. We, we, uh, we, I think we negated actually. Did we negate that one? That's a, that's a different story. Continue. I'm going to get my <laughs> facts straight here about that. But it's, Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it is that one, I think. Um, but it's like they they catch they catch them all on the boat and shit like that. Yeah, and they're gonna go kill cotton. Castro. Yeah, he's like, all I wanted to do was kill Castro. And he's like, I know, Dad, I know. And then that's kind of <laughs> like how they leave it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we so we thought, and I don't know how much of this legend seeps out into the world beyond us, but at the end of season 10, we thought the show was being canceled mm-hmm. because um we used to get preempted for football a lot. Uh, back when uh, football was on, I guess it's still on Fox, but when we were on Fox, we used to get preempted by football all the time. So a show that was supposed to air wouldn't air. And then some genius at Fox apparently at some point realized, and and I don't, and I don't mean one of our guys. I mean, like somebody at the network, some accountant in a room somewhere realized, Oh my God, we have so many uh, episodes of King of the Hill just like backlogged from being preempted that if we only ordered five episodes in a season we would have a whole season we think of all the money we'd save and someone's like promoted and then they (laughs) only ordered five episodes for season 10 which there were all of us like well that's it for the show we're done um and then everybody left so we did the five episodes and then everybody just scattered you know mostly a family guy we had some guys go down to the simpsons you know all of the 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 usual suspects um Mm -hmm. I remember if Bob's Burger was one of them. I know a lot of ex King of the Hill people ended up on Bob's Burgers. We're everywhere. We're like roaches. And uh, I was the last artist on the show because I was the retake director. 
And I had an assistant and like a week before my last day, my assistant was let go. So I was, it was me sitting alone in a studio. <laughs> I was the last guy on, I was, I was Jack and Rose as the Titanic was going down and I was like, hold on. And, uh, and I've been that guy a couple of times in my career. Um, but it was a week before my, what was supposed to be my last day. And my boss came in and she goes, I just got a call from Mark, who was the line producer over at Fox. And he goes, Fox just picked up season 11. And I was looking around and I was just like, I was like well, sure? I'm not going to do it by myself. And uh, the last three seasons were a little weird because we had to change the way the show was done because we lost our entire crew and we had to like get like kind of a whole new crew. But we switched after all those years of doing layout, we switched from layout back to storyboards and um, mm-hmm. did that for the last three seasons. But it was it was weird. And um, so what had happened was is that what was going to be the last episode of season 10, um, they wrote the, the, the writers wrote this tag at the end of the episode that was going to wrap everything up. Mm-hmm. And I think the animatic is on YouTube somewhere if someone's diligent enough to find it. And it was my, I think it was my, I'm trying to remember who did it. It was me and then somebody else. <laughs> it's all so blurry. Uh, it was a long time ago. And this was even longer ago because this would have been like 2005 or six. And um, they had written this thing where it was the guys and they were all hanging out. And by the, it was the classic, you know, they were standing around at the fence drinking beer and they were talking about the weird year they had just had and all the weird things that had just happened in the year. And the, the, the uh, insinuation was is that the previous 10 years had been one year of Arlen time. And mm. at one point, and they were like, oh, man, that time that this happened. And they were just re-referencing all these old shows. And Bill said, oh, and that time that we found out that Hank was born in New York and that we, you know, Cotton was going to kill Castro. And Hank's like, how many times do I have to tell you, Bill? That didn't happen. That was a weird dream you had when you ate that burrito or something like it was some, and they wrote it off as like a fever dream that Bill had had. And I thought that was pretty funny, but it never aired because we didn't get canceled. This was supposed to be the, the wrap up and we didn't get canceled. So that basically got scrapped, but it, I recently found out. Huh? Do you think, do you think it's can, if that would have played or if they make a reference to that, does that completely negate that episode and it's no longer canon? I don't know. Because the thing is, is that there were a couple of times where Canon got a little fuzzy. And, and the most uh-huh. notable one was the Montana episode. Uh-huh. Uh, it was called A Rover Runs Through It. And uh, the reason that was weird is because um, they wrote the episode where Peggy was going home to Montana. And it had been established that she was from Montana. That was a well-established fact. Mm-hmm. But it had also been well-established that she went to West Arlen High when Hank went to Arlen High and her mom also lived in Arlen and her mom just looked like an older version of her with like a beehive and um, was a housewife. And then they wrote this whole script where they were like, her mom is this rancher who still lives in Montana and was mad that Peggy left. um, Mm -hmm. Even though no one ever said anything about being mad that Luann's dad left to go work on an oil rig in Gulf of Mexico, but it was all these things. And all of us who were just the lowly artists were like, that's not how any of this happened. Like we have all these seasons of Canon. Like we, you saw Peggy's mom in like season one or two it was the episode where Hank um, got, we found out Hank mono. had a mom from kissing another yeah. girl. Like you see Peggy's mom living in Arlen, being a housewife. And, and, and they were like, Oh no, we're just, 
we're ignoring that and we're just we're doing this now and we were all kind of like really put off by that because it was just i'm like this is your show and i just felt like you don't really appreciate the the history the established history of the show so it wasn't a bad episode um and it also because henry winkler was in it and henry winkler who's notoriously the nicest human being who ever yeah. lived played this elevated sort of whole version of himself yeah. which i love we had a couple of guys randy travis did that too we had a couple of guys uh, times where we had some guy who was like notoriously nice play this like in a douchebag version of themselves um so i liked it for that reason but just the fact that it kind of just disregarded the established canon we were all a little put out i think at the time by it um the episode ended up looking amazing. The background artist had a field day doing all these beautiful Montana mountainscapes. You know, and mountains. yeah. 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 So that was all cool and everything, but, um, uh, but yeah, that, that, the, as far as the canon about whether or not Hank is actually from New York, uh, I, I like to think that that's not a thing that happened. Well, it, it's it, funny. It just, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm just saying it just doesn't fit. Like it doesn't fit Hank. You know, Hank is Texas through and through. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's as Texas as the Cowboys, but it, it's funny until you broke that down because I've seen the series so many times, five, six, seven mm-hmm. times, somewhere around there. But until you broke that down, I never really put thought into. I forgot, not that I've seen that mono episode because I could literally go through the chick that gave Hank mono is working at the Megalomart and she's handing yeah. out coupons and shit. And that's how Peggy mm-hmm. sees her. Um, yeah. They unlock the 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 the, the file. And then I completely forgot. Like I knew she's in Montana because they are Montana. She's from Montana because they make references to it through the entire series. And then you remember that mono episode, and like, well, she went to the rival school of Hank. Like, yeah. how can she be a Montana rancher? And I'm like, fuck! Until you broke it down, I'm like, god damn! I've been living yeah. a lie, Glenn, the entire time. I think the thing that bothered us was that it felt to us like when they decided to do that. And it was like literally one misfire in 13 seasons because I, I worked for every showrunner and, and they were all great in their own way. And they all had very different styles. And I, I really liked and respected every showrunner we ever had. And I, I actually got to know most of them um, and some of them better than others. And um, I feel like that was the one that comes to mind anyway, that was the one misfire in what was otherwise a very uh, carefully curated world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, that was uh, because I remember Hank used to almost make jokes that he married Peggy in spite of the fact that she was from Montana, Yeah, (laughs) Um, which was always kind of a a running joke. But um, yeah, that was just, that was one that kind of uh, bugged me a little, just a little bit. Um, But like I said, you know, the, the episode itself was, funny and like the way hank thought he was like and they they were treating hank like a city boy like a city slicker and he it just that drove him nuts because the land rover guy he's hank he's hank hill yeah and uh yeah he did not like that at all <laughs> yeah it it's uh it's a fascinating time man and since we're talking episodes i figure we talked a little bit about the uh uh you know about good hill hunting man but uh so you had sent me a list and you said I think you broke it down was like, uh, what was it? The funniest episode I worked on. This one had the best lines. I can't remember how you worded it, but. Well, I, there's, um, there's two. Whenever somebody asks me what my favorite episode is, I have mm-hmm. two answers. I have my favorite episode, which is Won't You Pee My Neighbor? Mm-hmm. And then the funniest episode we ever did, which was The Buck Stops Here. And um, Won't You Pee, Pee My Neighbor was hilarious. 
uh, I've had I rewatched it recently, and there was a line that Hank had that I forgot about that I was laughing hysterically at. I was like, "Oh, good, this show still holds up." <laughs> and it was Peggy was doing an impression of Khan, and then he goes, "That sounds more like men." And then she, as Khan goes, "You leave my wife out of this, you stupid hillbilly." And he's goes, "Oh my god, that is him!" And he laughs. He goes, "I wish they would move." And I yeah. just laugh so hard at that line. And it's Mike. It's Mike yeah. reading the line. He's he's. I remember the episode with Brad Pitt, where uh, Brad Pitt played Boomhauer's brother. Yes, Patch yes, Patch, yeah. We the tape of the table read was going around, and Brad Pitt was there, and Brad Pitt was murdering as as Patch mm-hmm. because he he was really excited about doing it, and he had created. And it, apparently, the whole thing was his idea. He he wanted. He had approached John Altshuler, our showrunner, and and because Jennifer Aniston he was still married to her. She had done a, a voice um, the previous season and Brad was a huge fan of the show. And he approached, he came to the record with her and he approached uh, John Altshaw and said, Hey, I want to do the show, but I want to play Boomhauer's brother. Cause he had done snatch and he had that great um, oh, traveler, great movie too. my favorite performance of his. And he wanted to do that because he loved like the talk and he created his own vocabulary for, for patch Boomhauer. And just absolutely destroyed at the table read. But the thing that I took away from the table read is listening to the, because I wasn't there, but I was listening to the tape of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, who's on a phone in Austin, Texas. So Mike is basically a speaker in the middle of a table and he's on a telephone, you know, 1500 miles away in Austin. There's a scene in the show where Hank and goes to Boomhauer's house to confront him about how Boomhauer's trying to sabotage his brother's marriage. Mm-hmm. And they get into a shouting match with each other. Same dude. Mike did it in both voices, yelling over himself over the phone. And I was listening to it. And I remember just the entire time, like my my entire world just became this tunnel. And I'm like, does everybody else understand this is one dude yelling at himself on a phone from a from 1500 miles away? And that was the moment like I'd always really respected Mike on on a lot of levels, but especially his voice work and character work. But I had never heard anything like that before. I had never heard anything as impressive in the moment as him having an argument with himself in two different voices, I was completely blown away, but everybody else just remembered Brad Pitt was there. <laughs> and then that able was able to keep the recorders. I'm sure they exist somewhere. I'm sure. I mean, they, mm-hmm. you know, this, we had those old Sony push button tapes where the tape would pop up and we'd stick oh, it in the there. Walkmans. Yeah. Well, they weren't Walkmans. They were like the, they had the one speaker. They were the mm-hmm. old school recorders that had oh. a hand on them. They were like yeah. this long. <laughs> And you would, you know, the tape would pop up, it had one speaker on it. And that's what we used to listen to the track on. Um, mm-hmm. Or, you know, or you would, I would have like, if you had a stereo, like a boom box stereo in your, yeah. in your cubicle with headphones, you would do that or whatever. But they were on cassette tapes at the time. Um, and we would watch the show on VHS. You know, it was 1998, 1999. It was the late 90s, early 2000s. It was the technology that we had. And we didn't know any better. So I couldn't go back to that. <laughs> but yeah, at the time, it was like, oh boy. I this get my own VCR. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I wish I still had that. Of course, I would have had to digitize it somehow because I don't have anything to play it on. But that was that. And, and yeah, that's the thing. Like so many of Hank's lines are funny because of the way Mike reads them. Subtle humor. Uh, yeah. It's just, just something about because he is that character. Mm-hmm. If, if someone if they tried to recast Hank and you found a guy who did a perfect impression of Mike doing Hank, he wouldn't have the timing. He wouldn't yeah. have the essence of the character. It just wouldn't be as funny. And Mike was just hilarious when he did that character. Um, 
there's just no two ways about it. You know, all, and you can say that about every single actor on that show. Mm-hmm. Pam Adlin was so Bobby Hill to her so very core that I'm like, and I, that's the thing that's in, in my head. It's like, cause uh, I, the only thing I know about the new, because like, they're you know bringing it back. It's mm-hmm. been announced. It's no secret. Um, the only thing I know about it is that, that they supposedly are aging everybody in real time and that Bobby's mm-hmm. going to be in his early twenties. And, and the, my only concern was, is Pam going to still do Bobby as a 23 year old? Because like no one else can do that character. It's Pam. <laughs> it's like, yeah. and I don't think anyone would accept anybody else doing that character. I don't know how they even would. Um, but yeah, it's whether it's Johnny Hardwick is Dale or whether it's, you know, it uh, fucking better be, uh, there's a well, few it's, things. It's gonna be, I, trust me. Trust me. It's going to be Johnny. <laughs> it's going to absolutely Oh, hundred percent. There's just like, you, you don't, with the exception of the, the, couple people that have passed away you know well, uh, obviously there's an elephant know. in the room that's going to need to be addressed there's two elephants in the room that need to be addressed and, and yeah. it's left the land um yeah sure. you know yeah so i don't know what they do and it's it sucks because like the one thing everybody not the one thing because there's been a couple things that everybody's kind of been talking about with the reboot it's like everybody is afraid of them they don't want to see recasting, and some people do want to see recasting as far as Brittany Murphy and um, yeah, Tom Petty. Uh, Tom Petty. Tom I knew Petty. it was Tom. I just I was getting ready to say Tom Hart, but that's not it. Um, but yeah, Tom Petty and, and Brittany Murphy. And then you've got uh, another thing that everybody because once they said they're aging it forward, the the next thing was like, "Fuck, man, we're gonna have a show without Lady Bird because obviously Lady Bird was already but old as Lady shit. Bird would hopefully they got a new dog. Lady Bird was on her way out. Mm-hmm. at the end of the show <laughs> i just hope she's everlasting and the, the downside is is like there'll be, a, there'll be later ladybird 2 <laughs> version 2 is just like a yeah. cybernetic dog at this point she's got another blood um, yeah you know so it's like i, I really want to i hope and i don't have any doubt that they're not going to keep this you don't and, I, and i'm biased as fuck when it comes to this show because I've, I've said it i think this is a perfect show with the exception of you just breaking my brain about Montana and West Ireland just a minute ago. And uh, in my opinion, I'm here, for. <laughs> I'm here to fuck shit up guys. Uh, be the last know, time no. in this interview. <laughs> but no, it's, it's like, I think it, I think it's a perfect show. I don't think there's really any filler episodes. I, I think you guys progressed a story and you guys told a beautiful story over 12 seasons. You guys kept me hooked. I mean, I'm still talking about it now, 20 fucking years later. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, it's something that's everlasting. It's been something that's been living rent-free in my head since as early as I can remember. Like you yeah. guys informed my teenage years and you guys continue to do that in my adult years too. I think it's been said a million times and I'll say it for the million and first time. Every single character on that show, everybody knows one or yes. two or three or four or five of those characters. Mm-hmm. My dad is Hank Hill with a better sense of humor. Really? Um, when I uh, when I got the job, King of the Hill was the only animated show my dad had ever seen because I would mm-hmm. go to the, the first two seasons when I was still living in Washington. I would go to their house on Sundays for dinner, and it was uh, that was when it was Simpsons at eight, King of the Hill at eight thirty, um, X Files at nine. It was probably the greatest lineup of television in the history of television for in the nineteen nineties. And we, my dad hated the Simpsons because he just didn't get it. Yeah. Uh, and then but the king of the hill would come on and just there was something about it and i remember it was the episode from season one where bobby got hooked on smoking and my dad used to be a yes. smoker and yeah. man when when bobby starts chewing on the patches and peggy's holding him down she goes hank go get get a stick 
my dad started laughing so hard. And I was, I was surprised because I'm like, I was surprised that my dad was laughing at a cartoon. And he just, he just resonated with the characters. He resonated with Rel. He resonated with Hank. Because like I said, he's totally Hank. Mm-hmm. Um, that episode, Racist Dog, where with Bernie Mac, God rest yes. him, where Bernie Mac was a repairman who came over to fix the hot water hot heater. Water tank. And yep. Lady Bird barked at him and attacked him. And then he accused Hank of being racist because dogs follow their owner's lead. And then you find out later that he wasn't, it wasn't because Bernie Mac was black. It was because he was a repairman that was fixing something that Hank couldn't fix. So Hank was super on edge about yeah. that. And Lady Bird picked up on that. That's my dad. If there's a he thing, he bit a white man. He bit a white man. Look, I'm not yeah, racist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my dad, if he can't fix something in his house and has to call a um, a professional, he's failed as a man, yeah. and, it, <laughs> and it kills him. And I remember when that episode came out, I'm like, "This is my dad. My dad does this. He can't stand when people come over to the house to fix things that he couldn't fix. He was a civil engineer in the Air Force. He's just used to being able to fix everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and I was just like, "That's my dad." with that episode and to this day my dad i gave because i gave my dad like king of hill um like crew jackets yeah and he, he always wears his to like home depot and just uh. and that's <laughs> if you're gonna get noticed if someone's gonna be like hey king of the hill it's gonna be at home depot god home i depot. hope so and to this day he still wears it and he still gets compliments all the time and he's like well my son used to work on the show i'm like it's 15 years ago <laughs> well, that's, 14, that's some- 14 years ago yeah that's something cool because i i always ask this question like what's it like seeing your name in the credits for the first time on, on this show but i want to take it one step further because you, you said your dad's a fan of the show what was it like did you guys ever talk or did he ever ask you anything like when he got to see your name in the credits for the first time because you said you used to go over there for sunday all the time and you guys eat mm-hmm. dinner watch the show but did he ever or do you ever remember him you know asking you about the show or what you did on the show or you know did he yeah, ever dive I mean, deep into it he would you know he didn't know what to ask um, but you know, we would talk about it and he would, he would, he would ask what I would call, what I call sort of standard civilian questions where he just didn't, mm-hmm. he didn't understand how this, how everything worked or what, what exactly it was I did. So he's like, so when I like, what did you do like on this episode? And I would explain to him as best I could. Yeah. I, I work on a Netflix show right now and that he's never seen because my dad doesn't know what Netflix is. So he's like, what channel is that? I'm like, it's not a channel. It's a it's streaming the Netflix channel. Do I, do I get that on my spectrum? I'm like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? You're just never going to see the show. Uh, <laughs> let's just accept that. That ship has sailed. Um, but yeah, so I would just try to explain to him as best mm-hmm. I could. Um, and, and yeah, I think I took him, I brought him to the um, the studio once. Mm-hmm. Like he and my stepmom were visiting and I brought him to the studio and showed him my office showed him some layouts and stuff that I had done. He met some of the, uh, he met some of the, 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 I remember, I think he met Clay. Uh, mm-hmm. That was one of the first guys he met when he came. Um, and yeah, he was just like, yeah. But what's funny about the old film Roman building is people was, would come and they were always disappointed because it could have been an accounting office. Like it just was a, it was just a cubicle farm. And yeah, we would have like, we used to, we painted the fence around the entire outside of the, um, the layout floor. And then they had, we had the wooden standees of the characters. But other than that, and occasionally whatever personal artwork people would put up, there was nothing whimsical about the place. If you ever went to Nickelodeon in the 90s, or early 2000s, that was what people expected because it was, everything was purple and orange and 
and uh, green, and it was like the characters everywhere, and it had this weird, squiggly architecture inside. And it was like, this can't be anything but an animation studio. Mm-hmm. And then they would come to film Roman and be like, uh, this is where you do it. And it's like, yeah, this is where you do it. This is where your dreams come to die, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yeah, this is where the magic happens. But uh, but yeah, that was always fun bringing people and them being disappointed by the studio because it was just it was just an office, you know. Oh, that's fascinating, man. Uh, but I got to imagine, man. So he liked the show, and I got to <laughs> I, I got to say, I got to imagine for the second time in a row, man. But it, it, it's just I think it'd be pretty cool to see. You know, you're sitting there, you're watching a show with your dad that you helped create, and you see your dad having fun with it. So I got. I got to think, man, that that felt pretty good for you to see that and get to share that with your dad, though. Yeah. Well, because I told him, well, it's funny. I always screw with my dad, like I always have. We've mm-hmm. I just we have that relationship. I prank him all the time. I mess with his head. And one of the things <laughs> that I was leaving, he said, you know, if it doesn't work out, you know, you can come back. And I was like, mm-hmm. thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> and uh, so when I got the call, for the job, I called my dad and I was like, dad, he's like, what? I'm like, hey, remember when you said that if things didn't work out, I could come back? He's like, yeah. I was like, well, thanks. I'll keep that in mind. But as it turns <laughs> out, Monday, I'm starting on King of the Hill. And he was just like, what? And then at first he's like, which show is that? And I'm like, remember the kid with the chewing on the nicotine patches? And he's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, yeah, that's the show I'm going to be working on. And he was like, because it was the only show he knew. So it was just yeah. it was like it was fate that I worked on the only show that my dad knew. Um, because if I'd worked on the Simpsons, he wouldn't have cared. <laughs> He'd just been like, eh, whatever, I guess if that makes you happy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's like I said, that's really cool, man. Uh, I really appreciate stories like that. So before we rotate and cause I've, I've had you on for almost two hours now, man, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. Uh, I've had a blast chatting with you, man. Um, before we before we rotate into that uh, that that last that couple of questions for those those people that I told you about we'd I'd ask you about um, the buck stops here. I just watched this one. I've I haven't seen this one in a long time. This episode, you said it in the email, hands down, some yeah. of the funniest dialogue I've ever seen. My daddy's having a heart attack. That one comes to mind. My, my daddy's Mr. Strickland a heart attack. got up under more balls than a midget hooker. <laughs> Minute. Yeah, that was. That was the line because it was the way Pam read the line because Bobby didn't know what that meant. He was just repeating mm-hmm. the line and it was hysterical. Uh, I love Buck. I love Buck because he's this huge blind spot for Hank. Hank is usually the smartest dude in every room that he's in. He's the guy that you cannot fool him. There's no flies on Hank ever. Mm-hmm. For some reason, he has this massive blind spot for Buck that he's the only person in the world that doesn't realize what a complete piece of crap that Buck, Buck Strickland is. My mom, and I told the showrunner, when my mom told me this story, and I can't remember if it was either John Altshuler, who was a great dude, or Garland Testa. And Garland was one of my, she was like one of the last showrunners. It was her and this guy named Jim Dotry for the co-showrunners uh, uh, at the end. And I, it was one of them. And because my mom told me once, she goes, when I watch your show, if I see Buck come on, I have to turn it off. Because Buck reminded her too much of her third husband. Like, yeah. exactly. And I told whoever the showrunner was, and they loved that. They loved that Buck was so real that my mom couldn't watch an episode with him. <laughs> but again, voice acting, Stephen Root, yes, to the point where most people know him as Bill. I love Bill. His Buck is so perfect. 
like him mm-hmm. as Buck is the funniest, one of the funniest things on that show. Um, and uh, and you know, and you see Stephen Root and everything from uh, you know, dodgeball and office space to I was watching Perry Mason with my wife recently, and he plays mm-hmm. the district attorney and just a prick in that show. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this guy is he's just, a chameleon. There's nothing this dude can't do. Mm-hmm. And I love Buck and I love him because of Steven, because he's such a huge fan of Stephen Rose. And I just that episode, because that was the that I think the importance of that episode was that it was the first time that Hank realized what a piece of crap Buck yes. is. It's the first time he really saw him for and it's because that he put Bobby in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And you but Hank can't have a blind spot when it comes to that. And uh and that and the thing is they they found a way and again our writers were just because I think Norm Hiscock wrote that episode Norm Hiscock wrote, he was one of our best writers he he won us the Emmy for they call it Bobby Love he was the writer of that episode um, he found a way to make it um, poignant and believable and hilarious that Hank finally sees Buck for who he is and he found the best possible way to do that and it's because of he did it through Bobby it was perfection and it's and also directed. By the aforementioned Michael D. Martino, creator of Avatar: The Last Airbender, directed that episode. Oh man, what a what a what a uh, pedigree for writers, directors, storyboard artists on that one. Yeah. The uh, the scene that comes to mind with this one is literally at the end of the episode where Buck's in the back of the truck. He's talking shit. He's sweaty. Has no shirt on, and he's talking shit. And then Hank lets off the gas mm-hmm. so he yep. can get one punch in. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> and he scene speeds of off again. <laughs> That scene from inside the truck cab when his head turns yeah. up, that's the, oh God, it was just so funny. Um, Dude, that, that was one of those times so where I used to love going to the color meetings and seeing the, the writers and producers, seeing the visuals of it sort of for the first time, because mm-hmm. they would write and whatever, but we would surprise them every once in a while with taking their joke and elevating it to a level that they, they hadn't even thought of. And that was one of those times. It was when that shot of Buck from the inside of the cab getting punched and then his face hitting the the window they laughed so hard in that thing um and yeah it was it was pretty it was priceless it was a great one of the one of my favorite moments in the show ever yeah absolutely man it's uh like i said a little bit earlier um you know it's always been cotton as far as one of my favorite characters and dale it's it's hard to bet against dale but (laughs) buck is just one of those characters that you can never count out because all the characters you can kind of guess or you can kind of understand with the exception of cotton, I think cotton and buck are probably in the same boat. You never know what can happen, what they're going to do, what they're going to say, or what might mm-hmm. transpire from whatever actions they do. And like I said, all the other characters, you kind of got a lane, you know, they got the do's and the don'ts and you know, they won't break, you know, good or bad, but mm-hmm. those two characters in particular, are just so chaotic and yeah. so out there that you just don't know what's going to happen. I think of all of the quote unquote like sort of jerk characters like Khan, Cotton, mm-hmm. Buck. Buck's the only one that, if, to the best of my knowledge, and from what I can remember, never had any kind of redemption. Yeah. Like Cotton had Just a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah, there were times where Cotton was like a human being, mm-hmm. and Khan was vulnerable plenty of times. Uh, same actor, by the way, Toby Huss. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, hilarious, great dude. Um, Buck was the only one where I just I do not remember a moment of that show where there was anything redemptive about Buck. There, no. you're just like he is a piece of crap. I think there was one episode where 
Hank kind of made him remember a little bit why he got into propane. And he started remembering him mentoring Hank and when he first hired Hank, because Hank was working at a jeans store and jeans store, yeah. really liked his gumption and his work ethic and everything. And he brought him in and he taught him the ropes. And I, I think that was the closest thing to redemption that, that Buck ever had was mm -hmm. that things had gone so badly for him at one point and that Hank made him remember kind of what really mattered and, and which mm -hmm. was like his business and you know, this past, and he just, he just reminded him of a simpler time. And mm -hmm. I think that was the closest thing to redemption that Buck ever had um, was that episode. I don't remember which episode that was, but I just remember, um, I just remember that one. That was the closest for the most part, though, you knew what you were getting with Buck Strickland. And yeah, that's chaos. Why. That's yeah. That's all just it was. Get. Yeah. And there was, again, it was never better just on display than in that episode. Mm -hmm. um, and like, just everything about that episode was so funny. It was so, it was definitive buck. Yeah. And, uh, I, I'm so glad it did not happen because when I saw that very rarely would I mimic other than lines, you know, I very rarely would I mimic what I watched, you know, wasn't doing anything, uh, you know, to, to like jackass was really big when I was growing up mm -hmm. and there was no fucking way I was doing anything <laughs> jackass. Cause I don't like to get hurt. I don't like pain, but yeah, the one no. thing that I always wanted to to try ever since and i saw it on king of the hill was the whole ice riding the yeah. i wanted to get a big old block of ice and ride it down a hill like they did and you know the buck stops here um luckily i never did it because i'm pretty sure i would have probably <laughs> killed myself hitting a tree or something along those lines but that was always something i wanted to do now as an adult i'm glad i didn't do um yeah. but as led, we uh, led to, that led to one of the other funniest lines of that episode mr strickland have you ever ridden a block of ice well i married miss liz didn't I? <laughs> Dude, yeah <laughs> God, his his I wonder how much because obviously I, I've talked to I've talked to I haven't talked to anybody that's written on the show. I don't think I, I've talked to um was it Stephen Collier. Um, I think Stephen Collier, I, that name sounds familiar. It might not be. Um, but I've talked to a guy that was uh, one of the main writers for the first couple of seasons. And, um, you know, I've talked to him through email and stuff. Um, so I've only talked to really artists and I've talked to I think maybe a background artist. Um, so I haven't gotten to talk to too many people on that side. But I'm always fascinated, like just how a script comes together, because you had said you said at the beginning or, you, you know, I might have alluded to it, but it's like this is some of the most well-written stuff I've, I've ever I've ever heard oh, yeah. from the jokes to the stories to how you guys kept continuity, with the exception of that one that one flub up you, you had mentioned. Yeah. How continuity just kept going and it just kept branching out every time you guys shot out two branches of a different story or or you're continuing somebody's story two more shot out and they complemented each other so i always found it fascinating um but like i said the writing on here uh uh, uh is one thing but i wonder how much of this um as far as the acting portion goes was something that they got to do off the cuff like steven root mike judge all those guys that were coming on here and got to like play around in the sandbox with each other and ad lib I'm sure, I mean, well, because the thing is, is like in animation, except for Bob's Burgers, Bob's Burgers is mm -hmm. one ex exception. Everybody uh, records their dialogue separately. So you have a mm -hmm. script and you're in a, you know, uh, Hank and Bill can be having a conversation and Mike is in Austin recording because he has a recording booth in his, in his office in Austin. So he'd record Hank and then two days later, Bill's recording the other half of that conversation here in L.A., so uh, Bob's Burgers, and I don't know how logistically they pulled this off, but the main, the Belcher family all records together in the same room. Mm -hmm. At least they did at the beginning. I don't know if that's still the case, but you can tell when you watch Bob's Burgers because there's a 
cadence and a yes. natural quality to the conversations that the Belchers have that you can't get when you're just reading a script. But I don't know how much was uh, changed or improv. Like I, the show I work on now, Big Mouth, all of the principal actors have a either a stand-up comedy or improv background. Mm -hmm. And they change, like Jason Manzoukas especially, um, changes things up in the booth fairly often <laughs> yeah. from what was in originally the script. And to our producer's credits, they tend to go with whatever he kind of comes up with because he's just hilarious. And uh, But I don't know how much of that was going on in King of the Hill. And I don't know if it was as much, especially in the early years, just because Greg Daniels was very meticulous. Like mm -hmm. he, it was almost like the show was a big block of marble and he was chiseling, chiseling away. away. Just like mm -hmm. a little bit at a time until it was just perfect. And then I think that just comes from him being on The Simpsons because I know like The Simpsons had like famously would be have like writer's rooms that would go to like three in the morning just trying to get a joke just laser perfect. Mm -hmm. And I saw Greg uh, shoot down jokes and cut lines that were hilarious, but it was just because it wasn't right for what the character. The character is like, well, it's just, and that was more important to him. Yes, Hank just said the funniest line of the episode, but it's not something that Hank would say. Mm -hmm. So Greg would just be like, go on. He was not precious about it. Um, I was very new because I, I moved into retakes season four, which is my second season on the show. And suddenly I got to go over to the writers. I get to go to the meetings, the color meetings over at Fox. And I used to get to sit in the room and Greg Daniels is sitting right there. That guy. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and, and he's you learn pretty quickly um, why he is where he is, you know, when he would do this. And and I wouldn't watch the show like we would sit and screen. I wouldn't I would watch Greg because he he wore his his opinion. He would literally he would watch the show like this mm -hmm. and he, his seat was closest to the TV and everybody was behind him. And then every once in a while he would go like this. And he would just like lean forward and he would shake his head like big, like comically big. And I would make a note on the board. I'm like, he's going to rewrite that. And then every once in a while, he would get his eyes would get big and he would go like this, like something happened that he was just like, yes, that's and I'm like, OK, cool, that's safe. Um, but when he was done, he would turn around and we had these stacks of storyboards of like each one. It was like three acts. So there'd be like these three bound things of storyboards. He'd grab the top one, grab a Sharpie, open it up and he would just start writing notes. After one viewing of the show, you just sit and start writing notes to the thing. And the rest of us would just sit and talk. And I would, I got to know some of the writers and, and a lot of SNL guys. So I, because Greg was an SNL um, alum. So he brought a lot of SNL guys and I would mm -hmm. talk to them about, you know, everything, anything they wanted to talk about. And then all of a sudden at one point, Greg would get to the end and he would close and he'd be like, thanks. And he would leave. And then his assistant would come over and pull down, grab the first board and just start going, okay scene two and he would just start reading off um greg's notes and i'm like he got all that from just watching the freaking show once he just That's knew so exactly crazy. what he wanted changed and i'm like jesus christ no no joke this guy is like he's he's you know it's not a it's not an accident that he's sitting in that chair no um, absolutely not i, I was um, just that was my first exposure to just like holy crap there's levels to this and you know and I'm seeing at the it. top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, he's at the top. He's the he's the he's the final boss, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, one of my big regrets in the show and regret might not be or maybe pet peeve is that Mike gets all the credit for King of Hill 
to most people because Mike's the name, he's the Beavis and Butthead guy, whatever. And I don't think that in the world outside of animation, Greg gets as much credit as he yeah. deserves for that show being what it is. Because I saw firsthand how much he was responsible for that show being what it was. And, and I just I don't think enough people know that. Um, and I think more people should. But as far as I know, Greg doesn't care. <laughs> Greg's just yeah, like, well, I mean, yeah. we've made it a point to to make sure we point that out because yeah. it's come up a few times and I draw a lot of correlation. You could draw, I mean, it's, it's, we've talked comics here, you know, a couple of times, uh, but I'm a, I, you heard it in the Alan Jacobson episode. Uh, I'm a huge comic book guy myself. I mean, that shelf back there is full of a shit ton of trades and <laughs> literally right here, I've got, you know, fucking 16 long boxes sitting on my shelves right here from oh, yeah. everything that, you know, I buy. And I told him I still go every Wednesday and get my comics and shit. Um, but uh, I draw a lot of correlations with Greg and Mike, almost like I do with Stan Lee and Jack the King Kirby. And then you've got Bob Kane and Bill Finger. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody knows Bob Finger created Batman to an extent, right? You know, everybody but knows Bob Kane or Bill Lee Finger. Is... Everybody knows well, here's the everybody, thing. everybody thinks Bob Kane created Batman. Well, that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. But Those of us like, know. <laughs> Everybody knows who Bill yeah. Finger is and what Bill Finger's importance is. It's the same thing yeah. with Jack the King Kirby, right? So, ladies and gentlemen, a little history lesson on, on I'm, I'm actually wearing my my favorite, my patented Batman hoodie today. I wear it in every episode because it's a little chilly in here. I don't want to, Julian doesn't want to get chilly at all. I refer to my person, myself as a third person. That was a little weird, but nonetheless, man, it's the point. Um, you know, so Bill Finger, ladies and gentlemen, for a little history lesson. Uh, if you like anything about Batman, chances are Bill Finger created from the Joker to Robin to Gotham City to putting yeah. Batman in something that wasn't red because Bob Kane said, Batman, let's put him in red, right? Pretty much Stupid. everything, everything but the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think is yeah, Bill literally Bob the mythos of Batman. Yeah, Bob Kane came up with the, the name Batman and Bill Finger did everything else. And he did not get credit until Batman versus Superman when his name popped up. Uh, there's I was, a really the only cool... thing about that movie I liked. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a couple scenes, and I, I will say that movie gets shit on a lot. There is one scene in particular, in my opinion, I love this latest Batman movie. This latest Batman movie with Robert Pattinson or Paddington, however you say his last Pattinson, name. Yeah, yeah, phenomenal. It is a perfect Batman movie. What you haven't seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. Holy I don't. Shit, I don't. Dude. I actually don't watch a lot of TV or movies because I stare at screens all day long. Oh, I can imagine. And then dude, this I is the one you gotta like see. Read or draw at the end of the day. There's. Oh, I, gonna, I think it's on there's... my list. I'm gonna see it. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Oh man, it, it's like I said. I, I can't wait till you do. Hopefully, it'll be soon so we can talk about it because there's two scenes <laughs> in particular that are fucking phenomenal. One scene, it's just like you see it in the trailer and shit, but how they shoot it. Like Batman is known for intimidation, right? He's mm-hmm known to scare the living shit out of people and you see it in the trailer you see him walking you know but i'm sitting in the i'm sitting in the movie theater with my son and usually what people know is batman swoops in and he swoops out he's like a ninja nobody sees him nobody it's like a fart in the wind he's here in a second then he's gone Mm -hmm. right so i'm sitting in the theater with my kid and uh you hear him there's like the whole train sequence that train station or the subway station scene and you hear him walking with his boots right you're hearing the steps and then my son leans over he's like he's not very quiet if he's walking loud and i'm like neither are you in a movie theater watch the movie man be quiet and then he it's an intimidation factor right so it's got this gang of guys and then you hear 
Batman's footsteps. And then mm. so it's building suspense. It's it's like the first time you see Alien in the original Alien movie. It's so long throughout the movie, the first 45 minutes, I think, you don't really see a full shot of the alien. And it's the yeah. same thing with this, this Batman. He's walking so slow and you hear him building suspense and you can see it in the actors' faces that are in these gangs. They're fucking terrified because of what's going to happen. Batman's going to jump out and punch everybody in the face, right? So <laughs> it, it's it's that sequence and that scene. It's like it, it encapsulates Batman. There's another one that I won't bring up towards the, uh, the end of the episode where I just find it beautiful. It's the shot, how they did it. You know, it's this beautiful red light. It's him leading people out with it. It's just very symbolic, like the scene. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that scene in the trailer as well. So I don't want to give too much away. But phenomenal. Going back to the Batman versus Superman, my favorite scene in that entire movie. It wasn't Martha, Martha, and they all point because they had the same mom name. It was the scene where Ben Affleck goes in the warehouse and he does like the whole Frank Miller-esque, the lat dark, uh, the, you know, the yeah, dark yeah. night where he's I've seen the, I've putting seen that the dude to the pallet. Right. Yep. You know, it's like he puts him through the the huge wooden crate. And I'm like, holy shit, this is the most Batman scene in any Batman movie that's ever been Batman. This is that scene. Right. I, I love that fucking scene. And plus, I think Ben Affleck, in my opinion, love Robert Pattinson. But I think Batman and Ben Affleck go hand in hand. You don't have to play Batman because somebody else is in the suit. You mm-hmm. have to crush Bruce Wayne. You have to be that douchey yeah. debonair billionaire. And that's what Ben Affleck plays really well. He plays really good douchey characters and he plays really good complex characters. And I think he just fucking crushed it as Batman. Um, I'm pretty sure I'll get roasted in some kind of comments, but I don't give a shit because I don't really read them too much anymore. So, you know, it is what it is. Opinions are like assholes, man. Everybody's got one. Sometimes they stink, but mine smells pretty good right now. And I just want to put this out there. Not enough people talk about the fact that Ben Affleck was in a movie called Hollywood Land where he played George Reeve, the guy who played Superman back in the 50s. And he banged Diane Lane, who plays Superman's mom in the DCEU. Not enough people talk about the fact that in the DCEU, Batman banged Superman's mom. And like, I just, let's just discuss amongst yourselves. And I just think that that's an important thing that people remember. So Moving we need on. to remember. Back to King of the Hill. Ladies I've said and gentlemen, my if you're piece on the matter. Score. You've heard it here first, people. If you're keeping score, you need to do some research about being Bill Finger. You need to do some research yeah. about Ben Affleck banging people's moms. And yeah. you need to do some research about Jack the King Kirby, ladies and gentlemen. Because uh, there's so many of these creators that do get uh, so much attention and so much love for the creating of this, this characters, these worlds. But so often, like folks like Greg Daniels, they go unnoticed to the main population, right? Mm-hmm. The main, you know, viewing viewing whatever viewership but what i love that mike judge has done that what bob kane never really did never really came out and said bill finger was just so such a big and influential help you know you saw a little bit with stan lee but even then he still went down as like i created spider-man i created the fantastic four i did this i did that he very rarely will say we did this what i like about mike judge is he's literally said and i don't want to quote it because I, I know i'll fuck up the quote but he's literally said that greg daniels is responsible for if everything that you love about the heart the soul the relatability of yeah. these characters 100 percent comes from greg daniels and his amazing eye and attention to detail and the fact that he can inject soul into these fictitious characters is the reason that this show works so i'm glad that mike has the foresight and the wherewithal to say i created these characters yeah but this guy created these characters he created the world that they inhabit mike is not a hey look at me kind of guy absolutely yeah i i I met him once in my 11 11 years and yeah reserved would be a word i would use to describe mike he's not 
a glory hound or an attention seeker, or he's a dude who has he's Hank, movies man. He's a normal he wants guy. to make. Yeah, he, he has movies he wants to make. He has cartoons he wants to make. Whatever he just wants to get stuff out there. And yeah, he and Greg have had a very lucrative and successful relationship over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, and they complement each other perfectly. Absolutely, man. So I figure what we can do to wrap up this episode is we'll uh, talk about those names. And, uh, you know, the we're going to go through some ones that uh, some pretty heavy hitters and we'll go through some ones that are sadly no, no longer with us. Um, but let's start at the top, man. And you can use, you know, one word, one phrase, one sentence, or if you got a, if you get a cool story about that one person that we bring up man, I'd love to hear it. And I know the fans would too, man. But starting at the top, man, Mike Judge, when you hear the name Mike Judge, man, what comes to mind? Mike, for me, because I, like I said, I met him once and I was well into my career at that point. He was in town uh, casting for his film Extract, starring Ben Affleck. Great move. It all yeah. comes back around. Um, banging and, moms. Yes. He was banging out everybody's mom. <laughs> and uh, I think that's what the movie was about. I don't remember. But uh, and I just met him and he was and John Altshaw, who was the showrunner at the time, he's like, hey, Mike, this is Glenn. Glenn's been on the show forever. And I was like, hey, nice to meet you. And he's like, hey. <laughs> and I was like, I expected nothing from him because I, I kind of had always known that, what he was like, that he was a very quiet, very reserved dude. But the thing with Mike, it was always just um, the biggest one, getting back to what I was talking about, the the table read where he was arguing with himself as as Hank and and, um, and Boomhauer. For me, it was his voice acting, because mm-hmm. as a person who was mostly a writer and director, he was a brilliant actor in the sense that he encapsulated the characters that he played so flawlessly. Like he, he wore them like a suit in a way that like, I don't know, like if something happened to God forbid, if something ever happened to Mike and they're like, we're going to bring King of the Hill back and we're going to cast some other dude as Hank, people would riot. And I'd be the first one in line with a pitchfork and a torch. Cause he's I'd be just right not, behind you, man. Yeah. yeah. It's just not going to happen. He's that guy. And, and, for me, that was always the thing with with Mike. It's just that he just was those characters. You know, mm-hmm. he was Boomhauer, he was Hank. That was just all there was to it, and there was there can be no other. Um, and that was like I said, the respect that I had for him of not just doing funny voices and acting them well, but just knowing who the character was mm-hmm. and knowing exactly how the character would act and how they would read a line is everything. Better than anybody else in the show, probably just because it's his show, it's his characters. And that's saying a lot because we had an amazing voice cast with crazy heavy hitter actors mm-hmm. that have been in other stuff that just, like I said, getting just steamered alone. Look up his IMDb. You'll get Carpal Tunnel scrolling through it. <laughs> and, it and it runs the gamut from sitcoms to Oscar to Coen Brothers movies, you know? And it's mm-hmm. like, but Mike, he was just like, he was the guy at the center of it all. And just um, he owned those characters like nobody else could. And that Absolutely. was the thing. About him. Like I said, I don't have a lot of personal experience with Mike, but those are the things I remember about him. He was just, you know, he, he was the guy. Absolutely, man. And uh, like, like I had said, you don't have to. What I, what I find fascinating about some of these guys that I'll ask you about is most of the time, these guys are just wrapped up in the day-to-day stuff on their side. So the interactions that you guys are going to get with them is pretty limited. I mean, a lot of the times when we ask, you know, questions about uh, when I had some of the Simpsons guys on, you know, I, I always want to know, like, what was what was uh, Mark Kirkland like? What was uh, Matt Groening like? What were all these guys that we always see, but we don't really see 
right? We see the names on the screens, mm-hmm. but very rarely do we see them out and about. And, you know, most of the time they see them at the party or they might have like one interaction because they're dealing with the networks. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with the executives. So if uh, you don't have really have to have a story, but like, if you know, like, what would you learn from them type of thing, man? And I think you, uh, you, you talked about it a little bit with Greg, where Greg could literally watch something one time and you could kind of know what he liked and what he didn't like. And then he would write everything down after one, which I think is so fucking insane because yeah. I can literally watch these shows that I've watched six to seven times. And I'm still pulling new shit out. So the fact that he can just watch it one goddamn time is so baffling to me. And I think, it's, like I said, it's a true mark of somebody that is the a, the master of the craft, essentially, yeah, is what top, I'm getting top at. Of this game, absolutely. Yeah. You know, so the next guy, you know, we're alluding to it. You know, we're, we've been edging the bet for a little while. So now we're going to pass foreplay and go straight to it, man. Greg Daniels. When you hear that name, Greg Daniels, what do you think about? So aside from everything I just told you that like where you're just kind of in low key awe of him mm-hmm. while you watch him do his thing. Um, my favorite Greg story was it was I just got onto retakes and I was just going over there for the first like it was one of the first couple of meetings I think I went to sometime in season four of the show. And we were on a break and I was talking to one of the writers about something and I was telling a story and I was telling you about how I screw with my dad all the time. Well, he, mm-hmm. trust me, that's why I get it from him. When we were kids back in the seventies in the ABC, they used to do this thing called the ABC Sunday night movie where they would show movies on ABC on Sunday nights, hence the name of the show. And every once in a while we'd win the lottery and we'd get a James Bond movie. And mm-hmm. my dad would make popcorn and we'd go down to the basement because we lived in Illinois and everybody had a concrete basement and we had this, old color TV that you had to turn on 15 minutes before you watch the show. Cause it had Heat to up. warm up, no remote control. And we're watching this movie riveted. It was Goldfinger. Never seen the movie mm. before at this point. I was eight years old. And it's the scene, the famous scene, he's strapped to a big block of ice, the laser beams headed for his junk. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. We keep cutting back and forth. He's sweating. The beam's getting closer. And we're like, huh? My dad gets up walks over the TV, turns it off. Oh. And he says, he just, he just goes, ain't no way he's getting out of that. And he just leaves. And my brothers what and I, <laughs> my brothers and I are diving each over each other. And we finally get to the TV and we turn it on and then wait five minutes for the little white dot in the middle to finally. And then God. by then he's out of it. And it was years before I found out how we got. Out of it. And I told that story and the writers were laughing and Greg was staring at me like this. Because I got the impression that Greg had kind of a um, a bit of a posh upbringing, like, you know, mm-hmm. New England boarding schools and stuff like that. I don't know that for sure, but that was just the vibe I got from the guy. And he just looked at me and he just goes, you got the coolest dad ever. <laughs> just like, and I just remember that was like this moment where I just thought it was so funny that like Greg was just like, fathers and sons act like that. And I almost felt a little bad for him because I was like, you know, because I got this sense in that moment, that, like that was not the relationship he had with his father. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and he was like, everybody else was laughing at the story. And Greg was just like, what? Riveted, yeah. <laughs> he did what? Um, that was my favorite story was Greg, just personal story with him, interaction. Um, other things I he, after the meetings, he would go and he would lie on the floor in his office. He'd walk by his office and he'd just be lying on the floor like this, staring up at the ceiling. You never question anything Greg. that. Didn't matter what he was doing. You're like, it's obviously working for him. So you just keep doing you, Greg. Uh, but that was the thing I remembered. He would just lie on the floor and stare at the ceiling after a meeting. They're probably thinking about the next episode or whatever. Give me. All right. 
And we're back. Uh, so thanks for sharing those stories about Mike and Greg, man. So another guy, we did a little bit of talking about him before we hit record, man. The man, the myth, the legend himself, Wes Archer. When you think of that name, you think of that person, what do you think about? Wes is hugely responsible for the course that my career took fairly mm-hmm. early on. And and what happened was, is um, I think it was, it was either late in third season or fourth season. I don't remember exactly. It was a long time ago. But Wes decided that it would be a good idea if all of the layout artists understood how timing worked, how mm-hmm. animation timing and exposure sheets and they, and how they, so they could understand like if a character's walking and talking, how long does that take make sure that you get the right number of steps, just little things like that. And in his mind, this will improve layouts and it will improve the overall animation. He was 100% right. So when he was like, just kind of announced that he was going to be teaching the layout artist, you know, how to time mm-hmm. in the small conference room at this time on this day, I was like, hell yeah, because I was still new and I wanted to know everything because my, all my training came on the job. Mm-hmm. So I show up that at that time at that day in the small conference room and it was just me and Wes. <laughs> nice. Nobody else had any interest whatsoever in learning. How to, this timing was a thing that scared the hell out of artists. Because you've ever seen an exposure sheet, it's just a bunch of lines and it's a bunch of marks and it's a bunch of numbers. And it's just, if you don't know what you're looking at, it's like Sanskrit. You're just, it's, and to them, it was too much like math and they didn't Mm -hmm. want any part of that. So I was the only person that showed up. And to put it mildly, to get timing instruction from Wes Archer is like taking batting practice with Hank Aaron. Mm. Like there isn't a better guy to learn from. So I'm sitting there just like, staring he's like okay and because of wes i was one of only three people including him in the studio that knew how to calculate a pan rate which is something we used to have to do back in the olden times and that is <laughs> and that used to scare the shit out of people because i had directors who just i just assumed every all the if you were above a certain level you knew how to do this nobody knew how to do it wes yeah. did one of our checkers and then me and uh much to my chagrin, because I got asked to do it more often than I would like. And and pan rates are just, so luckily a thing we don't have to do anymore, thanks to computer machines. But uh, so I'm just sitting there and I remember Wes was like, and I was just like mesmerized. At one point, Wes is like, um, he thought he was doing a bad job. And, and he was like, are, are you getting this? And he wasn't like, are you dumb and not getting this? He was more like, am I doing a bad job explaining this mm-hmm. to you? And I'm like, no, no, yeah, you do this, this, this. And he's like, okay, good. And then he would continue. But because of that, because he gave me that basis when it came time for someone, uh, my buddy, Matt got, he was um, in retakes and then he got promoted to assistant director. My pal, my current boss, Anthony Leoy got promoted to director. My buddy, Matt took his spot as assistant director. I took Matt's spot in retakes. It was this big, that's the way it worked back then. Everyone just got shuffled around. And because I knew at a time I was able to pick, sort of carry a bigger load in retakes than a lot of the other people that helped out as like the assistant. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I got moved into as the retake director for the remainder of the show. And that's been my niche in animation ever since. Um, because I have this, I've developed this ability to always see every single thing that's wrong with a scene to the point where I can, can't really enjoy animation anymore because <laughs> I'm just like, and we'll actually, trust me, watching these old scenes were just like making me itch or these old episodes were just making me itch like crazy because I saw all this stuff wrong with them because it was all done on cells back then and just mm-hmm. more stuff would go wrong. 
than, than Ken now. But uh, I just, I learned, I, I not only learned how to see what was wrong, I learned how to see what would go wrong if the scene stayed the way it was. Mm-hmm. Like if like if we ship the scene like this, this is what Korea is going to do. They're going to screw up this part and this part and this part. Um, I have I tell people all the time, it's the biggest piece of advice I give to board artists and to anybody else who's in the industry. As I say, remember one thing. You are not the last person that's going to touch this. When you're done with it, it's going to go to somebody else. And you need to ask yourself constantly, did I do enough so that the next person understands or is going to be able to understand what I intended and will be able to adequately convey that, especially Korea, because it's going halfway around the world being animated, animated by people who don't speak English. I said, and I always said, always ask yourself, how can Korea screw this up? And that's not a dig on Korea. It's you're asking yourself, did I do enough? Did I do everything that I needed to do to make mm-hmm. this as clear as possible so that we will get the results that we want? And that was stuff that I learned from Wes. I got that basis from him of, of timing. And with Wes, mostly it was just like going to the meetings with him and seeing him in the halls. And he would tell, out of nowhere, he would tell some funny story about him and his brother growing up in, in like Houston. And his brother, Martin, who I also knew, couldn't be less like Wes. Mm-hmm. A really cool, fun dude. But they're they're both really cool, just in very different ways. And yeah, Wes would just out of nowhere tell this really hilarious story. And then he would just start reading a book or something like he was an he's an interesting, interesting guy. But uh, I always saw a lot of parallels between him and Greg. Like, like I always saw Wes as like the uh, animation version of, of Greg, like the, the the art version, like Greg was yeah. to writing like Wes's animation. And they had history on The Simpsons, which I'm I'm positive is why Greg tapped him for um for king of the hill to supervise king of the hill um mm-hmm. like i think they just probably had a rapport because they were just so much alike they would just get so focused on a thing that the entire rest of the world would just disappear until they resolved that thing and and just a a, a level of focus that i don't think most people are capable of to be honest with you and yeah. watching them do it because i've watched west work and i've watched greg work and they're the parallels are astonishing to me and I and it was early on. I was like, "Oh, this is why Greg and respects West so much, and vice mm-hmm. versa, and why they work, work so well together. Just so on the same wavelength when it comes to making the show. And that's why when I was talking to West, I was talking to West last year uh, at an event, and I had asked him about the reboot, and he's like, "Oh yeah, they already reached out to me." And I'm like, "Of course they did. <laughs> you know, they're, they're you're the guy. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, who else are they going to reach out to? So, and um, as soon as the writer strike is resolved." Oh, that'll get going again. Those but, three uh, guys, that'd be one of those things where you you reach out or you say it like, you know what, let's reboot King of the Hill and you don't bring back Wes is almost as detrimental as not bringing back Greg and not bringing back Mike. You're literally yeah. shooting yourself in the foot. You know what I mean? And so, on the flip side, those three guys making a completely different show, it's going to be solid gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, like I like, said, they got, the, they got the foundation right there. Yeah, so... Looking forward to this reboot, man. I can't, I can't fucking wait, man. Um, and then I figure we'll, uh, we'll, we'll end it with this one, man. I, I told you we'd talk a little bit about Ian. I've heard some fantastic stories, and I love doing this when uh, the folks that helped create, you know, our childhood, our adulthood, our formative years, um, they're no longer here. And and I, I've, I've, I've been 
so I found out about Ian when I was watching because I've still got those DVDs and I was I love the behind the scenes cuts. So I, I love so I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch the season two one because I love for the longest time when I buy direct, uh, the DVDs, I, I wanted to watch the director's cut. I want them to explain why this shot was so influential and so important. And then the, you would get their inspirations from the shot. I actually took this shot because I saw this movie when I was a kid and I always loved how they shot up or they shot down so I, I find the director's cuts and the bonus features just so fascinating and i was just doing a deep dive into king of the hill because i knew earlier this year that i wanted to do like i did with aka cartoons which was the uh ed ed and eddie guys the mm-hmm. uh the guys and gals that created the show up in vancouver i wanted to do this with king of the hill for the original series because like i said i've had such joy over the last 20 plus years watching this show you guys really taught me how to be um, a good person, a good adult, like how to be a, a, an actual functional member of society. And I learned that through the lessons that I picked up from King of the Hill. So when I was doing this deep dive and I was just YouTube and stuff and seeing what I could find out as far as like the behind the scenes shit, one of the first videos I saw was Ian Wilcox. He was doing like you were talking about, you did where you were drawing these characters, but he was showing you backgrounds. He was showing you like the day to day for an animator. And I just happened to be like, oh man, this dude seems so cool. Maybe I could reach out to him. I find out that he passed away, sadly. So I was like, I want to know more about this guy because the stuff that they had on YouTube was very little and he was so fucking fascinating. And I was like, fuck, I want to know more about this guy. So anytime we can do this with folks like Ian, I want to do this with Ian. So, man, tell us your favorite story about Ian. God, we could do an entire series of podcasts on my favorite stories about Ian. Yeah. Ian was the kind of guy that you liked immediately. And if you didn't, it was a major failing on your part. Mm. If I ever met somebody that's like, I don't like Ian, I'd be like, get away from me. You You clearly are a flawed human being. I want nothing to do with it. Everybody loved Ian. If there was a moral core to the show, it was him. Ian was from a little town called Billerica, Massachusetts, which we used to joke was basically Mayberry, North Carolina. And everybody, and it was like, everything was kind of seen through this lens. And because of that, Ian came came with him a certain level of trust and naivete that the rest of us took ruthless advantage of. <laughs> out of and and he always took it in the spirit that it was intended because we loved him so much and we would just brutalize him and prank him relentlessly and he always loved it. He loved being in the barrel. And the time I remember, this is my favorite. I have many stories like this, but this is my favorite because it was the most elaborate. And he was actually flattered (laughs) when he found out the truth. Uh, Ian was not a football fan by or a sports fan of any kind by any stretch of the imagination, but he was from New England. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the years, take a pick, when the Patriots were basically marching to the Super Bowl and were the we're most likely going to win. So he went home for Christmas. He came back with a um, big New England Patriots banner and he put it up on the ceiling right over his cubicle. Well, my, um, I was, I think I was still an assistant retake director and my retake director, Matt Engstrom at the time. Matt's a huge football fan, uh, Minnesota Vikings. And he saw that and it offended him to his core. <laughs> so he immediately, the second he went to lunch, he yanked that thing down and was like, I just, this will not stand. Second Ian gets back, it's gone. He goes straight to our office. He knows Matt did it. Matt convinces Ian that he didn't. Lies to him right to his face in a way that almost impressed me because I wouldn't have been capable of it. And then Ian left, believing 
that Matt didn't do it because Matt told him he didn't. Okay. So he left. And then Matt just goes back to work. I'm like, all right, what are we going to do with the banner? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? You didn't go up into all that trouble. We're not going to do anything with it. And he's like, oh, I hadn't really thought about it. So I was like, have you ever seen the movie Amelie? And he was like, no. Uh, and I was like, so in Amelie, they steal a garden gnome from some lady and then they drive it all over hell and creation and they take pictures of it in all these weird locations and send the pictures back to the lady. I said, so here's what's going to happen. My wife at the time was had she had a corporate job. She's a writer now, but she had a corporate job that had her traveling all over the world all the time. Matt's dad lived in Hawaii. I had friends in San Francisco, like you name it. We just we just knew people all over the place. I said, this banner is going to go on a little trip. So Matt creates a, an email account, hankhill at yahoo.com. And the first place it went is my wife's company was headquartered in Boston. So the first stop the flag made, the banner made, was back in Boston. <laughs> and what was the, I remember this was how funny it was because my wife worked for an engineering software company that had a lot of Indian and Chinese uh, software engineers. Mm -hmm. so she went back to Boston for a to her company. Her company was having some sort of thing. So she had to go back to Boston for it. And it was like winter time. And I guess in Boston Square, whatever, there's a statue of Paul Revere. Mm -hmm. So she had her friend Arvin, who was this, an Indian engineer, climb up the statue with Ian's Holy banner, shit. hold it up and got a picture and sent it because he had no idea who this dude was. And when, all of a sudden one day, like the day after so we got the picture and Matt sent it to, to Ian through the, through the Hank Hill email. Door comes flying open. Ian slides in like Kramer and Seinfeld. He screams, the terrorists have my banner. Because this was pretty shortly after 9-11. And we're like, what the hell are you talking about? So he's showed us the picture. And I'm seeing this guy that I know is Indian. And Ian's like, what is going on? He's got it. And it's in, it's back in Boston. And I'm like, that is weird, man. So Matt and I are like Oscar worthy performances <laughs> acting like so surprised and trying to help Ian figure all this out. <laughs> Next stop, Chicago. Stop after that. I sent it to a friend yeah. in, um, a friend in San Francisco. And it's always these people that he doesn't know holding his banner up. So my friend Gail and her husband are holding it up in front of the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay. Matt's dad is has a friend of his holding it up in front of a waterfall in hawaii or some shit like that um the best ones by <laughs> far my wife went to amsterdam on a work trip so her boss was this short chinese lady who was holding it up in front of the amsterdam sex museum and then also standing out in a field in front of a bunch of windmills and every time they would get one of these these trips he's like i don't even want it back because i want to know where it's going next He's like, I'm jealous of my banner. And um, the last trip uh, it took, my wife went to New Zealand with her mom. And these were by far the best pictures. She got a picture of it in front of a Kiwi crossing sign. Mm -hmm. She took a helicopter up to the top of a glacier with the highest point in New Zealand. And the helicopter pilot is holding the banner up, standing mm -hmm. in front of his helicopter on top of this like snow-capped glacier, the highest point in New Zealand, holding up the New England Patriots banner. My favorite picture was that she had a Maori warrior doing the haka, holding up his. Oh, that's so fucking cool. And I'm just like this, like every time it went someplace, we're like, where is this going to like, where, where, how are we going to top this? I ended up blowing the whole thing. My wife is in New Zealand. This is 2004, I think. 
cell phone coverage wasn't a thing. Like you couldn't really get reach. I had no way to reach her. I got sick, sick to the point where I was in the hospital for four days. Mm -hmm. I have dogs. I needed someone to come take care of them. I have one absolutely indefatigable, reliable friend. And that is Ian. Ian is mm -hmm. a rock. And I'm like, Ian, I have to go to the hospital. <laughs> I don't know how long I'm going to be in there. Can you please come and take care of my dogs while I'm in there? He's like, absolutely. He comes four days and he's like, so where's Nicole? And in my stupid brain, I'm like, I can't tell him she's in New Zealand because he's going to be getting pictures of his banner in New Zealand and he's going to figure this whole thing out. So I evolved. You're going to love this. I told him she was in Orlando and that she was in some. <laughs> and I told him that because she'd stayed in Orlando once and the cell coverage was garbage because it was like out in the middle of a swamp or something. Really? So I was like, that's it. I was like, she's in Orlando. Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. And she's uh, she has no cell coverage. And he's like, weird. Okay. The next day, have you gotten a hold of Nicole yet? I'm like, uh, not yet. Still no coverage. By day four, he's like, where the hell is Nicole? And he's talking, he's telling me on this phone. And I felt like shit because I'm like, this dude is doing me the biggest solid ever by taking care of my dogs and taking care of my house while I'm dying in the hospital. So finally, and I might have used the term, and Ian reminded me of this many times over the years, I used the term, okay, the jig is up. <laughs> and he told me later, he goes, I thought you were about to tell me that Nicole had left you. And I was like, <laughs> Nicole wouldn't have left. So Nicole would have kicked me out of the house. She wouldn't have left me. And she certainly wouldn't have left me with the dog. She would have taken them too. Um, so I explained to him over the phone while I've got tubes sticking out of me while I'm in the hospital, Nicole's in New Zealand and she's got your banner and she got a picture of it on a glacier. And I couldn't tell you because, you know, blah, blah, and I was like, and he's just a long pause on the end of the other line. He's like, what? <laughs> And I had to explain it to him very slowly the entire day. He came the next day to visit me in the hospital with this look on his face, this like shit-eating grin look on his face because he had caught me without even trying to. <laughs> and I told him, I said, I said, I couldn't tell you she was in New Zealand because if, when you got the pictures, you would have put two and two together and you would have realized that it, we had your banner. And he looked at me like this. No, I wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> just like straight up and he's just like how smart do you think i am and uh we tried to turn the joker back on matt but the problem is, is that matt's like super short on like conscience so it didn't really work he didn't give a at shit at the end of the day it didn't matter and the the, the joke ended it was done because i blew it because i got sick but the important thing was is that uh years later um Ian gave the banner to our buddy Jack Perkins, uh, who we worked on the show with. And Jack is from Rhode Island and his dad is a huge Patriots fan. So we he gave Jack's dad the banner and we sent Jack's dad all the pictures and said, here's everywhere. Oh, that's this so cool. Event. So he hangs it out in front of his house during football season. And then his friends come over and he shows them all the pictures of where his banner's been and tells them the story. And that's that is one of many very elaborate pranks elaborate and long-term pranks that we played on Ian over the years and he always loved it and how long people, did that one go for wow months like yeah. months months something like my wife was going to Amsterdam and Boston and Chicago and and New Zealand and we were sending it to San Francisco and Hawaii and just you name it like it went on for months and Ian like I said he got to the point he didn't want it back they, the Patriots <laughs> had already won the Super Bowl and he was like, I don't want this thing, but I just want to know where it's going to be next.
He was like, he goes, I can't wait. He was, like, he was literally like, I can't wait to find out where it's going next. And and every single time we pranked him elaborately like that, he just loved it. And I had a friend of mine ask, he's like, why did you prank him so much? I'm like, because he was gullible and trusting mm-hmm. and it was easy. And, but also because we loved him. You think we're going to spend that much time and effort on somebody we don't like? <laughs> it's like, no. You have any idea how much we have to love somebody to go that that kind of, of trouble? And he knew that. And he always just took it exactly how it meant. But yeah, that was uh, when we lost him. It was a rough one. He 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 fought cancer for years. And there was always this like, just to give you an idea, um, we had a group text. Um, and my buddy Kevin was like, we used to go to the sushi place every single Thursday for years. It was right by Film Roman for years. Like we went in, they knew us. They knew everybody's order. Like it was just, it was one of those things. We just went for years. And my buddy Kevin had, we had this group text and he's like, Hey, who wants to go to Mia Sushi? And everyone's like, cool. When, when, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, how about, you know, Thursday or whatever. And then all of a sudden Ian just pops up on the thing. He goes, I'm having half my liver removed that day, but uh, you know, you guys have fun. And it was totally, and he was, but it was, that was, that was Ian. And we just yeah. laughed because then we, we laughed and then cried and then laughed more because we like, we knew that, yes, he was having half of his liver removed, but it was just the way he did it. We're like, yeah. can't make it that day, guys. Um, the last, and getting back to Ben Affleck uh, banging Diane Lane, because it always comes back to that. <laughs> it's always Ben Affleck bangs. The, guy the last sure. interaction I had with Ian, he messaged out of the blue, he messaged me and just said, um, who's your your favorite batman and he just literally went down i think affleck's pretty good my sentimental favorite is keaton and he went on and on and then my response was kevin conroy will always be my batman but Thank i think you. it's important to re- and i said but uh, i think it's important to remember that ben affleck played george reeves and played superman and i went through the whole thing and he banged uh superman's mom for man of steel and then ian said why do you have to ruin everything? And my response was, <laughs> you mean like the way Ben Affleck ruined Superman's mom in Hollywood land? And that was the last interaction I had with Ian. And uh, it was perfect. It was like chef's kiss, wrap it up with a bow. I couldn't have ended things better than that with him. Um, but yeah, uh, I think towards the end, he just wasn't letting a ton of people around him. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a sense because Ian was a big, tall, built guy. And I think that was just the way he wanted people to, because I don't even want to think about what he looked yeah. like or was like or acted like towards the end, because that's just that's not the image of him that I ever had. Yeah, um, absolutely. My and dad met for- my dad met Ian like a couple of times, loved him because my yeah. dad's also from New England and we used to and they used to commiserate about how everybody else talks funny. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, boy, oh boy, so do they. When, yeah. When I told my when I gave my dad the bad news, he was really upset and he had met, met Ian like two or three times. And Ian would make jokes because hey, I was talking to your dad last night. He was telling me about how it was like the son he never had. <laughs> just <laughs> like that. And uh, they just got along so well when they met. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing those stories. I know uh, it, it it brings up some good and then it brings up some bad memories. But if if I enjoy doing one thing, it's it's literally talking about the people, like I said at the beginning of this, that helped curate, helped create, you know, so many so many memories that we have not knowing this guy right and then you give us a little bit deeper you give us the backstory the biography you give us the behind the scenes cut you give us the director's edition of ian and um you know i I think i'm going to take all of these all of these episodes when i ask that question about ian i'm going to do just like one super cut 
and uh, mm-hmm. one video with as many people as I can get. And then maybe we can send it over to his family or, you know, so somebody can see the, the other side of Ian that maybe they might not have seen, or man, maybe it's just something that everybody can rem- reminisce about, because I think it's something beautiful, important that we keep the folks, like I said, they, they helped us and and I, I want to do the same thing and, and progressing these guys as legends, their stories, because legends will never die, man. So like I said, thank you for sharing those stories. Um, and as we, uh, as we wind down this episode, um, you know, it's, 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 I guess it's fitting when you think of King of the Hill, you think of the entire time you spent on it. You mm-hmm. think about the long days. You, you said it was your first job in animation. And, I, and I've heard that so many times. I think Alan, that was his first job oh, in yes. animation as well. You know, so many of us, most of the people yeah. I started with, it was the first job. Absolutely, man. So when you sit back and you think about where you're at now to where you started, you know, 25 years ago, however long it was you started, man, what are some of the first thoughts, the emotions? Maybe is there a word? Is there a phrase that you can attach your King of the Hill experience to? Um, well, I mean, the way I, I guess it's apropos that the way I started all of this was uh, if I had to sum it all up in one word, it's lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, I got so ridiculously lucky. And I've told younger friends of mine who are starting in the industry about how my early career went and they get mad at me because of mm-hmm. how so perfectly everything just seemed to fall into place for me. And I just went, I just, I took the opportunity and ran with it like crazy. And I was just, I was lucky that I got the job when I did. I was lucky that I got to work with the directors that I got to work with mm-hmm. and that I got trained by Sean and that Clay Hall was my first director and that I became friends with Alan, that I met Ian. Um, it was just, that was the thing. It was just luck after luck after luck. And and to be honest with you, I owe such a big part of my entire career to it because my current boss, Anthony Leoy, um, we worked together on the show, um, you know, I I worked with him on episodes as a director. I think it was, he, uh, it was the gun club episode was when I worked on with him. Um, yeah. I worked with him in retakes briefly. I think I worked with everybody in retakes at some point, but Anthony has pretty much been responsible for every job I've had since King of the Hill, because every, like he's gone on to supervise and direct American dad and uh, um, Cleveland show, a very short lived show called turbo fast that was on Netflix and currently big mouth. And I'm luckily, again, lucky, lucky, lucky. I'm like one of the first people he always calls. Mm-hmm. And um, and just that, building that relationship with, with him on that show has been, like I said, it's every job I've had since started with that. And it started with a relationship I built on that show. Um, so yeah, I literally, I said, I owe the house I'm sitting in I owe my wife because I was introduced to her by a guy I worked with on King of the Hill. Um, I Everything I own, every single thing I've done for the last 25 years, I owe to the fact that I got that show. Hmm. And like I said, nice. and it was because one day I saw a vacancy sign on an apartment in Lower Queen Anne Hill, Seattle, and there was a guy sitting in it who was an animator. Man, he's, like, you can, he's like, you can do this. If I had gone right instead of left, I don't even want to think about it. I start to throw up in my mouth a little bit to even think <laughs> if I had not gone into that apartment that day. It's it's it, terrifying to me to think how close I was to none of this happening. So it's, fucking, it's a wild, wild story. I'm glad you shared the stories you shared with me. 
because like I, I like I tell everybody, it, it's the show is very important to me, man. I, I didn't tell you this at the beginning, um, but I've told almost everybody else, man, when I would deploy those three straight years, uh, I would mm-hmm. bring DVD cases like that thick, like two inches thick. <laughs> I'd take all of my DVDs with me. Right. I took TV shows, movies. I always had two in particular that was always in heavy rotation as far as series going. It was Hey Arnold and it was King of the Hill. Whenever I felt like this is starting to get too much, I miss my wife. I miss my son. You know, I just had an in, like we had barely a month and a half old, two months old, and I'm gone for the first nine months of his life. Right. I'm deployed, you know, so I would pop in a DVD and I would just be transported to this little city that was called Arlen. And these characters that I grew up with helped me. It was a security blanket in a sense. When I started feeling like I, I couldn't do it anymore, I was too stressed. I miss my home. I miss my wife. I miss my kids. I miss my dogs. I just missed the fucking bed I, I owned and slept in. I missed my country. I missed everything about what I left behind when I signed that piece of paper saying Julian Hester is now a U.S. Navy sailor. You know, I, I would put this in and it would transport me to a piece of time. You guys gave me a chance to laugh when I didn't think I could laugh. You guys gave me a chance to decompress when I didn't think all I could do was just stress. So I'm forever grateful for folks like yourself and anybody else that's ever worked on this show. And honestly, from like, like I said, brother, from the bottom of my heart, man, thank you for everything you've done on this show because you guys impacted me and so many other fans of this series in ways that we can't even articulate at the end of the day. It's just you guys gave us something to, to, to believe in. You guys gave us something to enjoy. So thank you from me and from everybody else that's ever watched this amazing show. Thank you 100 times over. I, I, I did my best for 11 years. <laughs> oh, you did great, man. And uh, there's no better way to end this, man, than he's been Glenn. I've been Julian. It's been the What's My Head podcast. And this has been another piece of your childhood. Good night.